We're going to be recording all of our School of Ministry times together so that people who are out of town, I know we have a couple today, uh, can listen in. Uh, these as well, we're going to be posting on the, the Teams page. So uh, if you have not gotten signed up for Teams, if you haven't got that link, make sure that you talk to me and I will get you hooked up. Uh, this is going to be a lengthy process. Uh, we're going to be at this for a couple years. Uh, that means we're not going to try and uh, fix all the world in, in one go. Uh, we're going to try and stick to what, what we're covering, get through it. Uh, hopefully creating, using Teams to create some of that dialogue back and forth. Uh, you'll see on that syllabus there is some uh, writing requirements, thinking about what is God's call on your life. So in general, this is an intro to ministry. Uh, in general, every Christian has a call to ministry, a call to serve other believers, to reach out in love to non-believers, and to share the gospel effectively uh, with both of those. That's every Christian's call. Having said that, uh, there are some who are called into uh, a more active and upfront role in ministry, uh, which may not mean that you ever are a pastor or uh, you're preaching from a pulpit, uh, but there are some people who you just sort of look at in your life and go, they have a very active, out front lifestyle of ministry. So a, a good example of that that we actually have in this room would be one of our elders, Jonas Miller, who uh, runs a company or a couple companies. I don't know. I don't know what all he does. Uh, he doesn't sleep at night. I'm pretty sure that's the case. Maybe, maybe, maybe a solid 45 minutes in there. Uh, but is constantly ministry-minded, whether it is sharing the gospel, uh, talking with people, encouraging people, uh, pointing them towards godly resources, it just that, that constant movement towards ministry. Uh, and then sort of up from that is vocational ministry, where it's actually the job that you do, uh, whether that is a volunteer position or a paid position, uh, whether it is paid on staff at a church or you've raised support to go be a missionary someplace. Um, there, there's sort of different levels of activity within this call to ministry that all believers have. And, it, and here's why I want to start with this. Uh, the farther up you chase in that food chain, uh, the more potential for hurt, damage done either to you or to the people around you. Uh, burnout in general it happens uh, especially the further up you get in that. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said, The solemn work with which the Christian ministry concerns itself demands a man's all, and that all at its best. To engage in it half-heartedly is an insult to God and to man. And so I want to begin as we look at uh, School of Ministry, uh, not only deepening our walk with God, but how do we effectively communicate that and share that with those around us with some rather sobering statistics. Uh, and it, again, it, if you're on the Teams thing, you can pull up the syllabus for the first lesson or the lesson one, and these stats are on there for you. Uh, the profession of pastor is near the bottom of a survey of the most respected professions, just above car salesmen, which I think says a lot. Uh, Seventy percent of faster, pastors feel grossly underpaid. Ninety percent work an average of 55 to 75 hours a week. Seventy-five percent 
report their congregation experienced conflict in the last two years. Uh, more than 20% of those were significant enough that members left, which that one, I'm actually surprised the number isn't much higher than that. Uh, 75% report that they have significant stress-related crisis at least one point in their ministry. 50% feel unable to meet the needs of the job. Uh, by the way, those are the older ones. The young ones are absolutely convinced that they're ready to take on the world and pastor a megachurch. Uh, 40% report a serious conflict with a parishioner in the last month. 40% say they've considered leaving their pastorate in the last three months. 50% say they feel so discouraged that they would leave the ministry if they could, but they have no other way of making a living. 50% of ministers uh, starting out don't last five years. In fact, the national average for a pastor taking a church and staying there is 18 months. Just take a big deep breath on that because all of the, the sort of starry-eyed enthusiasm that we bring towards ministry, uh, a year and a half it will beat the crap out of you. And if this isn't a sovereign call of God and you are convinced in the power of God's word, not yourself, to affect change and salvation in people, anything that's depending on yourself, it will leave you hanging. Uh, one out of ten uh, will make it to retirement as a minister. Ten percent. The rest are going to quit. Uh, 1,700 left the ministry every month last year. 45.5% say they've experienced burnout to the extent that they needed to take a leave of absence from the ministry. 70% say they have lower self-esteem now than they did starting out. 70% say that they consistently fight depression. Uh, Charles Spurgeon and Martin Luther, incredible men who guided the church both experienced such crushing depression in their life and ministry that they had days where they couldn't get out of bed. Kind of shocking. Uh, 70% uh, do not have someone that they consider a close friend. Let that sink in. 90% said that the ministry was completely different than what they thought it would be. 90% said they felt inadequate inadequately trained to cope with ministry demands, uh, especially in the tradition that I grew up in, which was the most spiritual thing that you could do was uh, fill your heart with a passion for God and then uh, aggressively go into ministry, skipping all kinds of training, especially formal training. And it has left so many people horribly underprepared. 80% uh, feel unqualified and discouraged in their role of pastor. Now, those stats were compiled in 2011 when we first did this class. And three days ago, H.B. Charles, um, a prominent pastor, shared a Barna study that was just done in March of 2022. Uh, in fact, it was released uh, April 27th, so like just released of 2022, and it was looking at that plus all of the COVID stuff we've just been through, 
56% said they had immense job stress. 43% said they felt lonely and isolated. Uh, 38% uh, said they considered quitting because of political divisions in the church. These are all the reasons that these guys want to quit. Uh, Not optimistic about the future of my church. Uh, My vision of the church conflicts with the church's direction. That's a normal one. In fact, I would say that one's okay. Like, that's that's fine. Uh, Not being optimistic about where the church is heading is not great. My church is steadily declining. Uh, I don't feel respected by my congregants. I don't feel equipped to cope with the ministry demands. I don't feel successful in my job. I don't feel supported by this staff. Uh, I'm experiencing a personal crisis of faith. Ministry is not what I thought it would be. I don't feel respected by those outside of the church. And 21% said something else. Uh, Altogether, the demands of ministry, especially in the last two years, has been crushing on leaders. And that's not even taking into account the average stuff that people go through on a daily basis. Uh, How will that affect you? Because if you're like me, I, I think about... Uh, 22, 23, 24-year-old me sitting in this uh, seat going, (laughs) yeah, but you don't know. Man, you don't know what's under the hood. This thing's about to take off. We're going to light this thing up. How can it affect you? Marriage and family. Uh, 33% say they uh, have confessed inappropriate sexual behavior with someone in the church. 20% say they viewed pornography at at least once a month. According to a focus on the Family Pastoral Ministries Division, approximately 20% of monthly calls to their pastoral line deal with sexual misconduct or pornography. 20% admit uh, having committed adultery while in ministry. 51% say that internet pornography uh, is a possible temptation for them. 37% admit a current struggle. So of in pastors in general, almost 40%. 48% uh, think being in ministry is hazardous to family well-being. I would just like to pause for about 30 seconds after each one of these and just let that sink in. Uh, 80% believe that pastoral ministry affects their family negatively. By the way, I would, as someone who's been a pastor for a while, I would say absolutely in the moment it has a negative effect on your family. And yet, by the grace of God and with some diligence, I look at our family and say it has been only God's glory and gift. So uh, I rejoice to see my children walking with the Lord. Okay, good. Uh, 80% say that they have insufficient time with spouse. 58% say that their spouse works either part-time or full-time outside the home because the family needs the income. 56% of pastor's wives say that they have no close friends. 45% of pastor's wives say the greatest danger to them and family is physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual burnout. 80% of pastor's wives say they wish their husband would find a different job. You have no idea how many times Danielle and I have had that conversation. Can you please just do something else? Is there any way? Let this cup pass for me. (laughs) Uh, uh, 80% of wives feel left out and underappreciated by the church. 
80% of wives feel their husband is overworked. 66% of pastors and their families feel pressure to model the ideal family for their congregation and community. Why begin with that load of garbage? (laughs) Because if you think that ministry is just about your spiritual highs and that roller coaster and goosebumps and the great wisdom or anointing that you have to bring, I am telling you, brothers and sisters, you will be horribly disappointed and probably the first to burn out. The only thing, all right, this isn't in my notes, but I'm just going to say this right from the beginning. The only thing that you have to offer anyone is God and his word. And that's it. If your ministry is built on your personality, uh, your anything, I don't care what you stick in that blank after that, your and then a blank, uh, it will fail and it will probably do damage to you and to those around you. So all of these things are scary. They sound kind of depressing, but I would say they don't have to be. Some of these things are just realities of faithful ministry. Uh, Nobody goes onto the mission field in Africa because they really want to have a six-figure salary, right? They they want to climb the corporate ladder. Uh, These are part of sacrificial servant ministry. You probably will not get paid well. You will not always be respected. Now, I I think we have to conduct ourselves in a way that is honorable, uh, that is well-spoken of, respected by all. But I promise you, as the one who's called to not only encourage, but to lovingly rebuke, when you poke people's bruises, they will turn on you like a biting dog. Not everyone will love you. (laughs) It sounds cliche to say that, doesn't it? Not everybody's going to love you. Uh, Only, you know what all of us want in this room? Everyone to love us. We want to be appreciated. Even the people who go, I don't care. I don't care if, uh, oh, I had a friend about 10 years ago. He's like, I don't care. I'm going to speak the truth. I'm a prophet. (laughs) Uh, Only, you know what he got really mad at? When people didn't listen to him or respect him. Why? Because he wanted everyone to love him. Sometimes they won't even like you. That might even be your own family. All right. Some of these statistics are because of unfaithful men. So let's get this this right up front. Uh, I saw a story just yesterday of another pastor uh, in handcuffs being led into a courtroom because of some kind of misconduct. This happens all the time. And when it does, it is a disgrace to them, their church, the gospel, and Christians in general. Uh, In reality, not everybody's in ministry for the right reasons. It may not be all about the gospel. It may not be about Christ's power to save. It may be that uh, they've always wanted to stand on the front of the stage. It may mean that they want to gather a crowd around them. It may mean that they want to get rich and famous and have a mega church. But many of these statistics are because of a failure of normal people, God-loving people, God-honoring people to plan for the future and to plan for a God-honoring ministry. Uh, That is why uh, we have certain things set in place for ourselves. John and I, uh, staff here at the church, ministry leaders, uh, things as simple as, and we'll get to this stuff later on, um, that we're not going to do 
unless it is an absolute emergency. And even then we're going to want someone's arm to have fallen off, uh, like one-on-one counseling with somebody, of the opposite sex. Uh, if someone is stranded, I, I can think of a time that happened a couple years ago. There was a young lady who was stranded. Her car had broke down. She was from church. Her car broke down and she's like, can I get a ride home? And I'm like, I'll stay here while you call someone to come pick you up. But I'm not going to put a female with me in the car one-on-one and drive her anywhere. Not because I think the power of temptation is too much and it's going to be overwhelming, but the power of accusation is too much. In America, you are guilty, innocent till proven guilty unless you're accused of sexual misconduct or actually any misconduct within the church. And then you are guilty even if proven innocent. Uh, wasn't that that pastor that, yeah, no. That's the reason for this school of ministry. We want you to think about the weight of serving and ministry before you step in. Jesus said, don't put your hand to the plow and then look back and then go, man, what did I sign up for? We have to be able to bear that weight as Christ enables us and Christ calls us just as he did, where we say, man, if there's any way that this cup could pass from me, it, literally, if there's any other thing that you can do and feel happy about yourself, don't go into full-time ministry. And yet I remember as a young kid, I was working for some friends who had a business in Topeka and talking with one of my best friends, their daughter. And uh, I remember saying to her, if I worked in a factory the rest of my life, I feel like my whole life would be a failure. And she kind of looked at me like, what did you just say about my life? <laughs> but, but if you can do those things and serve the Lord and honor him and feel fulfilled, fulfilled, I would say 100% go for it. And if God has put something burning in your chest that is driving you, man, you better go for it. Don't, don't sell yourself short on that. All right. That is the first section. So... We are not going to take a break. We're going to pick it right up with session two. Session two, the call to prepare for ministry. Yeah. Yeah, we're going to we'll record the audio. The question was, is being recorded? Actually, if you have a question, I should have said this earlier. Shout them out. Uh, I did a little sound check before all the bodies filled up the room and you could hear someone talking from the back, but you're going to have to talk nice and loud. Uh, that way, as far as people listening and, and going back, you'll be able to hear questions. <clears throat> Introduction to ministry. Lesson two, the call to prepare. First Timothy 3.1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So Paul assumes that there is a desire for ministry, not just a general call. We started with that. There's a general call to all believers uh, to be effective in ministry, to loving each other, to sharing good news with each other, encouraging, uh, strengthening, rebuking one another, to evangelizing, sharing the gospel with those who don't know. And yet for ministry, Paul seems to say that there's a, there's a secondary call in here, that those who desire uh, the office of overseer, uh, that word is also translated bishop. Uh, it's where we get uh, some of those words of presbyter. Uh, it's a good call. So he does not 
necessarily say that the desire is equal to the call. All right, let's be clear about that. There are some people who go, uh, I have a desire for this, therefore I am called to this. Uh, when I was a kid, I loved playing baseball and I had a desire to play in the major leagues. I did not have either calling or ability. All right. Although I still think the NBA might be in my future. I don't know. If I can convince them to lower the rims to eight and a half, I've got a shot. All right. This sense of call, an aspiration or desire, uh, is not an authoritative event. All right. So that this isn't uh, God parts the clouds and strikes you with a bolt of lightning. Uh, it's an invitation to begin the process of evaluation, testing and preparation. All right. So the, the process is evaluating, evaluating your life, your heart, your character, your ability, testing those things, uh, because you can have all of that ability and then never actually put the developmental work in to where you are uh, proven yourself as a faithful and adequate uh, steward of God's word and the preparation that goes into that. Can I ask a backup question? Yeah. Sorry, just my brain's processing. You said um, just because you have the desire does not mean that you have the calling. If you, does it go the other way around? You may have the calling, but you don't have the desire. What's that? I'd say good for a season. Yeah, so the part of the thing with desire is it comes and goes. And uh, you can have a certain desire. So uh, switch the parameters here. Don't think about ministry. Uh, think about the guy or the girl that in uh, your eighth grade year, you were pretty sure you were going to marry. Uh, like you had this this overwhelming desire like, yes. There she is, you know, or, or whatever. I just know it. This is this is going to be the one. Only as time went on, uh, some of those desires waned and some of those desires grew, until hopefully, for those of you married in this room, uh, you found the person who you were convinced, no, like this is it, like this is where I have to commit myself. Now, since then. Has your desire always stayed at that absolute peak, like the groom watching her walk down the aisle? Like, oh, yes. Well, no, I mean, it, it kind of comes and goes. Uh, but that, that overwhelming commitment is something that we not only experience, but that we foster, we stir up within ourselves. The other side is, and it, marriage is a good example of this, uh, think about people that you know who have been hurt and broken and maybe even divorced. And they go through a time of going like, not interested. I don't want, I, I've been so broken by this. I don't want anything to do with it, which is why I think the answer exactly right is, you know, for a season where there's, there's a level of hurt. I, I remember we finished four years of really difficult internship uh, at a church in Sturgis. And we came back and we said, absolutely not. We are not doing anything in ministry. That we're not leading anything. We're not teaching anything. I'm not playing on the worship team. We're just going to come back and get healed. And that very first week, the lady who played keyboard was sick and wasn't at church. <laughs> They're like, now, do you want to fill in? 
And the broken part of me went, nope, not interested. And the called part of me went, yeah, of course. Of course I will. And that was the end of our waiting period. (laughs) Just kind of awesome. Uh, So, uh, and that's, I think, one of the reasons why desire and call can't be equated one-to-one. The call is the thing that you cannot get away from. Uh, Jeremiah, he said, you know, these people are listening. I'm done. Yeah. And he said, but it was like a burning in my bones and I had to speak out. His desire was zero, but God didn't let the call go. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, actually, the, the asker of the question, just as illustration, is a great illustration of this. Uh, Chuck and Corrine have been involved in all kinds of ministry stuff through the years, and uh, some of it was, like, painful. And, like, well, never doing that again. And I remember talking to Chuck when he was considering taking the job at the school, teaching Spanish and all of the concerns about like, oh man, what's that going to, you know, I'm not a teacher. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm like, yep, but you have a calling to young people and it's not going to take long at all before you're having ministry connections with them because you can't help it. (laughs) And, And I just talked with them on Thursday and all the other concerns are what they are on the side and the uh, the school administrators are like, yes, teacher, yeah, whatever. We'll, we'll help you get there. Your connection with the kids is unbelievable. Now, when you're trying to make a decision on what to do with uh, <laughs> vocation, it's like, well, that wasn't helpful. <laughs> uh, but it, like, it really is. In Chuck's heart and life, that calling, that connection that he has with kids is fantastic. And, and inescapable, even when there's pain and... Ah, I don't know what to do. And yet, that, that's a great example. I'm glad you asked that question, Chuck. Good. All right. Uh, this process has two components. It has an internal call, number one. Uh, not just a sense of desire, but through his spirit, God speaks to those that he has called. So Martin Luther, uh, on the internal call, referred to it as God's voice heard by faith. Uh, a sense of leading purpose and growing commitment. Charles Spurgeon, on his internal call, referred to it as an intense, all-absorbing desire for the work. Uh, If, like Martin Luther, you're going to do this standing against all of the world to preach justification by faith alone, uh, you'd better have an intense, all-absorbing desire for the work. Otherwise, you won't last that year and a half. Uh, A growing compulsion to preach the truth and the word and to minister to the people of God. By the way, don't unhook those two. Because you probably have skill in one area uh, or the other, maybe sometimes both. But a real, I know a lot of guys who want to get into ministry because they want to preach the word. And yet they really don't care much for God's people. At least some of God's people. There's some who happen to be just uh, in the exact vein that I am in. And they'll all day uh, preach to them, connect with them. Uh, but the rest of it, let the rest of their own congregation becomes the bane of their existence. And there again, it's good to know seasons. By the way, I can say that uh, because young in ministry, that was me. So if you were on board with what I was on board with, man, let's go at this thing all day long. And if you weren't, uh, I was actually being mentored by a pastor, not at this church, who was like, and that's why we leave them and run them over. Like, 
you're done. You're out. <coughs> uh, and that was, that was a style of ministry that I kind of imbibed for a while. Praise God that he beats those rough edges off of our lives. Uh, where now one of my favorite things to do is sit and listen to people uh, who don't think like me. Like, man, God, help me understand them. Help me love them and serve them better. All right. Anyways, uh, all that God does in you, desire, gifting, and character are part of his comprehensive work of grace. God has gifted you, uh, or has God gifted you with a fervent desire to preach? Fantastic. That's one component of it. Uh, Has God equipped you with gifts necessary uh, from ministry? Great, that's one component of it. Uh, by the way, the ones that you are weak in, you have to be working and filling up really hard rather than just leaning into strengths. Do you love God's word and feel called to teach? Uh, Spurgeon warned those who sought his counsel not to preach if they could help it. <laughs> when young guys would come and say, man, I feel called to ministry, he's like, don't do it if you can help it. And then there's some who you just can't help it. Uh, but if he can't help it, Spurgeon said, and he must preach or die, then he is the man. That sense of urgent commission is one of the central marks of an authentic call. First Corinthians nine sixteen. woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. That's what Paul said, harassed, beaten, stoned, left for dead, shipwrecked. Man, I'm going to go back to like tent making. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. All right, so that's the internal call. The external call, number two, uh, from the leadership of the church and the congregation in general. I I want us to make a really clear distinction. Uh, The internal call goes to the end of your fingertips. This is now external to you. And woe to you if you fail to listen to both of these. God's conviction, God's moving, God's gifting on your own heart and the godly counsel of men and women who love you and who are surrounding you. From the leadership of the church and the congregation in general, unfortunately, many in ministry think of careers rather than calling. This is a job opportunity, and therefore there's job stepping stones rather than this is what God has called me to. Uh, God works through means. All right, so God could just... uh, text blast all of our hearts with the gospel and instantly download faith and boom there we are and yet he chooses to use uh, fragile broken insufficient means like you and i Uh, if he is calling you he will call you through the local church part of that is because when god speaks to us through his word it's his perfect word when god speaks through a man it comes muddled with uh, the perfection of god's word Uh, the perfection of God's heart mixed with the perversion of the own person's heart. And I don't mean like sexual perversion, but a twisting, a bending and breaking of God's perfect will and heart. And then an imperfect uh, communication of that. Uh, If those Christians who know you best are responsible to God for you, don't miss that. That those uh, who are in leadership in the church will give an account. You may be called to minister to the brothers and sisters, Uh, But it's really clear that there are those in ministry who will give an account for how they have overseen your souls. If they don't affirm this sense of call, it would be unwise and because of that unbiblical to ignore their assessment. 
to just dismiss out of hand what they say. John Newton says this, none but he who made the world can be the maker, can make a minister of the gospel. One more time because I can't read. None but he who made the world can make a minister of the gospel. This isn't talent. You didn't make the team because you had a high enough batting average. Uh, This is the active work of the Holy Spirit. Only God can make a true minister. And only he can grant the minister the gifts necessary for service. But the great promise of Scripture is that God does call ministers and presents these servants as gifts to the church. So consider your calling. Do you sense that God is calling you to ministry, whether as a pastor or as another servant in the church? Do you burn with a compulsion to proclaim the word of God, share the gospel, care for God's flock? Has this call been confirmed and encouraged by those Christians who knew you, who know you best? All right, John, you want to switch and you can take over. Once you've received the call, how do we prepare? And by the way, two fingers just scrolls it up. All right, once we've received the call, how do we prepare? Uh, Al Mohler said that the call to ministry is the call to prepare. Um, that you, uh, they're synonymous. As soon as God calls you, that is him starting to prepare you for what he has ahead for you. And uh, these marks of godliness are arrived at only by a diligent pursuit of godliness. A diligent pursuit pursuit. Uh, I like where in Hebrews where Paul says, or the writer of Hebrews says that we are to pursue holiness. That word pursue uh, has the idea of uh, not allowing anything to stop you, uh, that nothing gets in your way. It's not just, I'm going to go after this as long as I can, or as long as it's convenient or comfortable. It says, no, I will let nothing stop this pursuit. Uh, And it's a pursuit of godliness that changes and takes place in the heart, changes and takes place in the head and in the hands. Um, Somebody who wants to pursue ministry, but doesn't want to pursue godliness and how he uses his hands in serving, uh, putting the, the hand to the plow. He's got some some other things he needs to pursue first. Uh, same with the heart and the head. Uh, head knowledge and heart application are things that must be pursued in the diligent pursuit of godliness. Uh, nothing can be uh, left uh, unattended to in the heart, the head, and the hands. And no exploration of or preparations for ministry is wasted time. Uh, These things are all good things. Uh, They will make you happy in God. As we pursue godliness in our heart, our head, our hands, uh, it is what brings us a joy and a satisfaction and fulfillment in who God is, even if you don't end up doing some kind, some form of ministry. So these preparation things are not, I'm going to do this so that one day I will be in ministry. I am doing these things as part of my ministry uh, because you don't do these things and now I'm a, I can be in ministry. It's I'm going to do these things as part of being a minister, a servant of God. And after I am in ministry, I will continue doing these things. It's, it's not like 
boot camp where you go to boot camp in the military and once you're done with boot camp, all that preparation is in the past and now you go forward. No, this pursuit of godliness, heart, head, hands is constant in ministry. Uh, so again, it's not just preparation for ministry, it is ministry. So, heart, uh, discipleship. In 1 Timothy 6, uh, Paul says this to Timothy, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good, good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So your life must be marked by diligent pursuit of God and godliness. In Acts 6, we read this. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Our call is not to be skilled professionals. John Piper wrote a great book called Brothers, We Are Not Professionals um, that talked about this. So our call is not to be skilled professionals, but to be devoted disciples. That's when he says we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Uh, To devote yourself means you give yourself wholeheartedly over to something. He's saying we are going to give ourselves over wholeheartedly to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So we also wholeheartedly embrace biblical fellowship. Uh, That includes things like encouragement, pursuit of correction, uh, confession of sin, spurring one another on to good works. Uh, We all need other people in the body of Christ. Um, Raise your hand if you're omniscient. <laughs> well, <laughs> never mind. I'm going to move on now because that's totally blown no. up. <laughs> Other than uh, Aiden and Britt, who uh, raise their hands to be omniscient, the rest of us have blind spots. On oh, on mission. Oh no, omniscient. I thought you said Amish. <laughs> oh, Jonas raised his hand on that one. What did you actually say? Are you omniscient? Oh. Do you know everything? That's a different question than I'm Dost thou knowest it all? There we go. Omniscient. So should Aiden just teach now? Yes, since he knows it all. <laughs> he is prepared. Yes, he was raised prepared. So on that note, for those who did say they're omniscient, seize every opportunity for humility. That's what it says in the notes. That was the next thing. Uh, We are accountable to others. Uh, We need each other. That's that's one of the reasons uh, in Hebrews when it says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. He's not saying, hey, it's important to be in church. Uh, in the context, he says, why? We need one another to stir one another up to love and good works. We need each other. Seize every opportunity for humility by making yourself accountable to others. And it's not just 
uh, seizing that opportunity for humility, but also for safety, um, to be accountable to others. Um, as you're preparing for ministry, pursue your pastors and elders. Uh, when I first became a family pastor t- 12 years ago, uh, we had a guest speaker in town who he came to our church to do uh, several days on uh, specifically father-son relationships. Man, I was taking him to lunch. I was having meetings with him. I wanted to pick his brain to find out what God had taught him and how I could learn from him. So pursue your your pastors and elders, those who have experience that God has given them. So that's part of that heart, that that discipleship. Uh, Pursue those that you can learn from. And then uh, when we talk about the head, pursuing godliness with your head, um, that means study. Cultivate a passion for learning. Uh, Cultivate a passion for learning. D.A. Carson says this, Effectiveness in teaching the Bible is purchased at the price of much study. Some of it lonely, all of it tiring. If you are not a student of the word, you are not called to be a teacher of the word. And I love that, that last sentence there. If you are not a student of the word, you're not called to be a teacher of the word. Psalm 111 says this, Great are the works of the Lord. They are studied by all who delight in them. So delight leads to study, and study leads eventually to further delight. It is a very non-vicious circle. The more you study, the more you'll be amazed as God and His grace opens and reveals His truth to you, which is going to make you want to dig in even more as He does that. It is an incredibly awesome uh, thing that God has set up that way in our lives. Psalm 39, uh, he says this, My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. That word mused means to think. So the more he thought, the fire burned. Uh, That's why if you go to an amusement park, that word awe means not. Amusement means I'm not thinking. That's what amusement is, not thinking. Um, But here he says, as I mused, as I thought on the things of God, the fire burned. Then he says, I spoke with my tongue. Uh, So study is for the purpose of knowing God, loving God, showing God. Um, Don't make the mistake of thinking that the purpose of study is knowing about God. It's not. It's about knowing God. Jesus said that all of Scripture points to Him. In other words, all of Scripture as we study it is to point us to Christ, not point us to being able to win an argument, not pointing us to knowing how to make a good point. It's pointing us to knowing God which leads to loving God, which leads to us wanting to show God to others. So that is the purpose of study. Never lose sight of that. Uh, Proverbs 2 says this, If you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. So when it's saying, if you call for insight, raise your voice for understanding. If you seek it like silver, search for it as hidden treasures, you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Uh, 
this knowledge of God, this wisdom is something that we are to search for like a treasure. Uh, how many guys, if you knew that you had a treasure buried in your backyard, you'd go in, you'd get your shovel, you'd scrape the surface of the ground and go, well, it's not there. How many guys would, man, you'd be kicking that shovel deeper and deeper until you hit gold. But so often we scrape the surface of scripture and think, ah, it's too hard. I'm done. Man, it is a treasure worth digging for. It is a treasure worth digging for. And there is so much more to be gained than just scratching the surface. One of the most important things in preparation for ministry and in ministry is to develop an intimate relationship with your Bible. Uh, Christian ministry is the ministry of the word. Uh, the substance of ministry is the word of God. The authority for ministry is the word of God. And you may think, well, Christian ministry is ministry of the word, but what about the helping people and almsgiving? That is still the ministry of the word. We do that because God compels us through his word to minister to people in that way. It all goes back to the word of God as our basis. The authority of ministry is the word of God. The substance of what we do is the word of God. So it is important to study biblical doctrine. It is important to study biblical doctrine. Theology uh, gets a bad rap, but really all theology is, is what do you believe about God? What do you believe about God? The truth is you are a theologian. It's not something some guys do so they can make up a bunch of Latin terms that none of us know what they mean. Uh, a theologian is anybody who has developed a belief about God. That is your theology. You are a theologian. So the question isn't, are you a theologian? The question is, what kind of theologian are you? Are you going to be a good, faithful one or a bad, unfaithful one? You are a theologian, just like you are an evangelist. You are a witness. It's just what kind are you? And then also understand that in addition to studying biblical doctrine, uh, you may have heard the phrase leaders or readers. Anybody here ever heard that phrase, leaders or readers? Um, and, you know, this, the school of ministry is a great starting point for that because there will be a lot of additional reading uh, other than just scripture within this course. Uh, but again, scripture is always first and foremost. Again, the substance and authority for ministry are the word of God. It is always first and foremost. But God has given us a, a wealth of godly instructors, uh, men who are alive, men who are dead. And it would be foolish and arrogant not to learn from them. Uh, I remember one thing that has greatly impacted uh, my life and kind of guided me in my philosophy is something that Spurgeon said. He said that he tried to learn as much as he could about many, as many different things as he could so that no matter who he talked to, he would have a bridge into the gospel. Uh, so he, he was a voracious reader about all kinds of topics so that no matter who he talked to, he could have that bridge of association. So leaders are readers. And uh, you will be a reader uh, by the time we are done here with the School of Ministry. And then 
pursuing godliness with your hands, uh, as we talked about earlier, that service. Uh, and no desire for ministry should be latent. Uh, you know, president, it should be present, but not evident, um, potential, but not active. Now, it's, are you serving right now? There is no, oh, I, I have this desire for ministry, but I'm just going to sit on it for now. Well, if you're not like Jeremiah, where he says, I'm going to sit on it, but it's a flame in my bones. Now, are you serving right now? Because God has already given you a spiritual gift. Are you using it right now? You should be. You should be looking for opportunities to serve. Uh, so position yourself to serve people. Um, and when we talk about are you serving in ministry right now, we don't necessarily mean some official role or official capacity. Are you serving the people of God right now? Um, if you're not involved in serving people, you will have a hard time properly discerning a call. One of the best ways to discern if you're called to ministry is to minister. Uh, you will soon find out, yes, I am called to this. Um, your idea of ministry may be idealistic, unrealistic, dangerous, and that's why it is so important to serve in ministry. Uh, the number of uh, guys who go all the way through seminary, they spend six years in college, go through seminary to be pastors, and then 18 months later, they're like, yeah, this isn't for me. Because they spent six years preparing but not necessarily actually doing ministry until they had already gone all through these years of preparation. And not that seminary is bad, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that don't let anything replace or substitute actually serving to find out if your ideas of ministry are idealistic, unrealistic, or dangerous. And so something that is actually related to the issue of preparation is preparing your finances. Sure. Not at all. Um, the last point, pursue godliness with your hands and serve right now. Yes. Um, if I were someone who grew up in this community, I would take that literally, that serving has to be with your hands. Uh, Can you clarify serving in that sense? Right. Uh, now, when you say taking it literally, um, you mean like I have to help with have a to frolic? Yeah. To. <laughs> yes yeah i have to to build something or clean the church or uh no when we talk about your hands and service it doesn't necessarily mean using your hands to construct something to build something that uh one great ministry uh that we encourage our kids to do is with folks in nursing homes just sitting with them and talking with them that is an incredible act of service for people who can't get out and can be very lonely. Um, you're not doing anything quote unquote constructive with your hands, but man, you're pouring into the life of somebody who needs poured into and it's very constructive, but it wouldn't be considered building something with your hands. Uh, so we use the word hands metaphorically, uh, in this as what we mean by it is, uh, ministry and love in action and john 3 it says let us not just first john 3 says let us not just love with word and tongue but indeed in truth in other words put it into action uh, and so that that would be an example of how do we serve how do we pursue god pursue godliness with our hands um, not necessarily 
literally with our hands. And we'll uh, talk about that just a little bit at the end of this session, just where the requirements for service for school ministry. All right. Yes, good question. And uh, coming to the end here. Uh, in preparing your finances, one of the greatest hindrances or a major hindrance in ministry is debt. Uh, as we already talked about, we don't get into ministry because we, well, uh, a right call <laughs> does not get into ministry uh, to be rich, to be wealthy. Uh, and so a lot of times ministry income and heavy debt are not compatible. Um, ministry isn't a career advancement. Uh, on my ordination council, uh, it was this council where there were five pastors uh, firing questions at me about um, doctrine and ethics and hypothetical situations. And one of them said, where do you see yourself in 10 years? I'm like, actually, that's, that's not a fair question for ministry because this isn't a corporate thing where it's career advancement, where, well, I'm going to start here, then I'm going to progress to this and progress to that. Um, ministry is not career advancement, and it's not compatible with a, a heavy debt load. Uh, and so right now, especially uh, if you're young, start planning and preparing your finances now. Um, start preparing your finances now. And uh, one important thing, though, is don't allow condemnation on this issue. Oh, I've already blown it. Well, I guess I can't do this. No, don't allow condemnation on the issue. It's if you're in a position where you can preclude this, then be in action now to preclude taking on heavy debt and, and all of that. Uh, if you're in the midst of that, rely on the grace of God. Uh, it, it doesn't mean that you can't be in ministry. It just means you may have to uh, do a little more thought and planning uh, from here on out. And the last thing here is that the call to ministry is a call to slavery. In Romans 1, Paul says in his introduction, he says, Paul, a servant. Uh, that word servant is the word doulos, which means slave. Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So notice he doesn't say Paul, an apostle set apart for the gospel of God, a servant of Christ. No, he identifies himself first and foremost as a slave of Christ. That, that is greater than being an apostle or being set apart. James, James says this, James, a servant, a doulos, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, in case you're not aware of it, the James who wrote the book of James was Jesus's brother, well, half-brother. Um, but you notice he doesn't say James, Jesus's brother. Uh, I mean, you know, if you wanted to impress a church, oh, on my resume, yeah, family, Jesus. But he doesn't do that. He sends this letter and he says, I'm a slave of God and of Jesus. That, that's greater than Jesus being my brother, literally, my brother. Um, and this is where fulfillment is found. Um, not in your accomplishments, your titles, your gifts, your callings. It is in being found as having the privilege of being a slave to Christ, a servant of Jesus. Because that is something that not just anybody in the world, you can't wake up one morning and decide, I'm going to be a slave of Jesus. This is for those whom he has called to himself. It is an incredible privilege, but that doesn't mean it's always convenient, comfortable, or fun. 
but it is a great honor and a great privilege. All right, grab your papers that say EWC School of Ministry at the top. We talked about this. You should have got one of those and a schedule if you didn't uh, see me in the break here that we're going to have. We talked about it a few weeks ago in our prep meeting for this. Uh, If you look down at the bottom, what is the commitment? Uh, The commitment is to serving someplace at EWC. So uh, when I say at EWC, what I mean is something uh, specifically local church related. So that's, that's outside of some like parachurch organization. Uh, it's outside of whatever duties God has called you to execute within your own family. Uh, ministry is serving not just in those areas, but specifically within the bounds of the local church. So some uh, participation in Sunday morning services, participation in community group, uh, that means that you're actually going to show up to church. So we can't have somebody who is like, man, I'm totally gung-ho. I'm on board with this whole school and ministry thing. And then like they haven't been to church in four months. We would say, actually, if the calling is through the conduit of the local church, uh, you're being wildly unfaithful to God's word. Uh, we also want that second layer of connection within community groups. And I know several of you in this room are actually community group leaders. Uh, helping with that. Uh, it's important to not only have leaders, but to uh, for us to be participating one with another in those community groups. Uh, it's a commitment to make a school of ministry, whether it is the reading, the writing assignments that are, are coming out of it, uh, or this time that we're spending together a priority for the next couple years. And uh, that means it, it's going to take precedence over many other things. And uh, we talked about this. I don't want to go too much into it, but um, it's because we we believe that it's God's word that is going to shape and mold us and the fellowship that we have with each other. Um, So one of the examples that we had about getting wise counsel from others in the notes, it had a little teaching uh, prompt reminder of a story that happened. I'm not going to tell you who it was because it's an embarrassing story, but it's one of the people who helped put this material together. I don't know if I mentioned credit wise, my brother put all this material together, but we were doing, uh, we were doing a, a volleyball night out in the, uh, the auditorium. This was like 10 years ago. Just, just get together, have a bunch of people just play volleyball, just going for it. And it got kind of ruckus at those things. Those of you who are old enough to remember being around them. And, uh, we were playing and something happened and I don't remember exactly what Jason did, but he tore the back of his pants out and didn't know it and continued gladly playing to the glory of God and thinking, I'm really, I really got this thing. Like I'm doing, I have another pants story, but my pants tore in front and I knew it from minute one. That's the internal call. What he needed was the external call because no one told him (laughs) through the entire thing. Now he was, he had appropriate undergarments, but no one, no one came to him and said, brother, your butt's hanging out, right? Uh, That's what we need from each other. Now, 
Now, in that situation, it's humorous, and we laugh at it and go, oh, yeah, man, I wish somebody would tell me. Most of the time when we have those conversations, not well-received. <laughs> Just go to the bank, uh, and this is one of those things on, on man, you'd better be convinced that it's, it is the love of God and the Word of God that are shaping the hearts and minds of people where we're in each other's lives. It's not just about clocking in. Like we're committed to this time because we want to punch in the time clock. And once we've done it, we've accomplished it at the end, man, we want to grow in God's word and we want to grow in trust and relationship with each other so that these people are the ones who can come to you and go, brother, your butt's out. And there's embarrassment. And they were like, seriously, (laughs) you need that. If you don't have that and you're on your own, you're on your own. Uh, so uh, when it comes to this commitment, let's make this a, a very high priority. So if you have something already scheduled, like when we had to move the date, which by the way, that's not happening anymore. Once these dates are inked, they're in for the next two years. Uh, we will move funerals rather than move school of ministry. Uh, if you have something scheduled, so when we had to move the date to today, we had a couple people who already had something scheduled. They were going to be out of town. That's fine. Uh, if you don't have already something scheduled, that schedule that I gave to you, put those on your calendar, uh, and those become the things that you're not skipping. You're, you won't schedule anything over top of it. Do you realize that the April dates of 23 are Easter weekend, right? It could be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's going to be a, that's going to be a busy week. It's not changing. (laughs) We built that in intentionally (laughs) as an opportunity for you guys to get involved in serving in things like Good Friday service. Did you guys like our Good Friday service this year? I was so encouraged by, I don't know. Anyways, all right, not on topic. Uh, So anyways, make it a priority. Make the reading a priority. Uh, So I have a handout for you here. Uh, We're going to take a break. When we come back, I'll hand it out. It's going to be the uh, syllabus for uh, this one. And then I also have the syllabus for the next one so that you can start on going. I'm going to make a priority on writing what's my call to ministry that that's the one for this one uh the next one we're going to be starting by reading john piper's desiring god if you've already read it i'm going to ask you to read it again Uh, it is thick and meaty and good for you and it will be good for your soul if you're auditing the class uh, i would say there's no obligation to do the writing although i think it would be fantastic to get on teams and do some of the the social interaction that we're going to ask you to do Uh, if if you don't want to write the papers the social thing is a great sort of halfway point i would really encourage you if you can read the books though Uh, it will there again be impactful will shape your heart and mind in how you think about things audible Audible is god's gift to the human race right there yeah Super good. Super good. Uh, although I will tell you, uh, Desiring God is not a book that you can effectively read and do anything else. Like, and read, listen to. I've tried it, and I'm like, nope. Like, you just kind of have to sit with it, or it just flies right over you. So, all right, let's take a 10-minute break, and we will start back up here in just a few minutes.
All right, lesson three, introduction to ministry, the caller and the call. So the common question is, how did that man get to that place, and how do I get to that place? Uh, so if you see somebody successful in ministry, we say, how did they get there? Uh, all too often, we think it is a set of practices that they have done, and then we try and take their set of practices and copy and paste them into our church, our ministry setting, only to find either really, really limited success or complete non-success. Or even worse, success that is not success at all. Uh, you've built a really big church and failed to make disciples of Jesus Christ who are converted by the power of the gospel. Charles Spurgeon, who you're going to hear a lot of throughout these uh, months, he, he probably won't be here in person. How many a young man know whether he is called or not? That is a weighty inquiry, and to desire to treat it most solemnly, oh, for divine guidance in doing so. That hundreds have missed their way and stumbled against a pulpit is sorrowfully evident from the fruitless ministries, decaying churches which surround us. It is a fearful calamity to a man to miss his calling and to the church upon whom he imposes himself. His mistake involves an inf infliction of the most grievous kind. It is... It, it, I want to just keep coming back to this, not just about you. You are serving the people of God, and what you do is either going to be blessing and increase, or it could be harm and detriment. Therefore, let us be sober-minded when it comes to our ministry. Am I called to do that? Uh, what's the process? Uh, does lightning need to strike? Martin Luther famously in his... Uh, Calling and conversion, he was, he was meant to be a lawyer and was heading back towards his hometown late at night, all alone on a horse, gets caught in a lightning storm, and uh, it is so severe, lightning is striking all around him. He's laying on the ground, uh, pleading for his life, thinking he's going to die at any moment, and he cries out, and I don't advise this, uh, St. Anne, which would be... Uh, Mary's mother, St. Anne, if you save me, I will become a monk. And he did not die that night and immediately the next day told his very disappointed father that he was not going to be a lawyer, but was joining a monastery. And his dad did everything he could to stop him. <laughs> Anyways, uh, I wasn't even in the notes. I don't know why I'm talking about that. All right. Lightning does not need to strike. All right. Uh, all right, as long as I got a Bible, let's read 1 Timothy 3.1, which sadly I can read out of this Bible. Why? Because I got bifocals this week. One of us. We referenced this earlier, but as long as you brought your Bibles, it's good to break them out. Uh, this is a good one to underline in your Bible. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. 
Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? There is found within scripture several references of uh, lists of qualifications for those who would enter ministry. But here's the most important qualification is the call to ministry has to begin with the caller. Not the qualifications, not the talents, the abilities, not all the boxes that you can check off, but God himself. So the discussion about calling does not begin with us. It must begin with the caller. Sinclair Ferguson said one of the New Testament's most frequent one word descriptions of the Christian is that he is called to the called, the chosen. Our calling is not a statement about us. It is a statement about God. So calling says very little about us, and it says a lot about the caller. So let's talk a little bit about understanding the link between caller and calling. Number one, the caller makes the first call through the gospel. The most important call on us is not about what we do or where we go. The most, the most important call is the one you already have received. The call to faith, the call to life in Christ, issued in eternity past, mediated through the cross, and announced through the gospel. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the spirit and belief in truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So number one, it is an effective calling. Uh, this is true for salvation, I believe it's true for ministry as well. This is why running away from the call to ministry is like the fire shut up in your bones. But it's true for salvation. Wayne Grudem said, Effective calling is an act of God the Father speaking through the human proclamation of the gospel in which he summons people to himself in such a way as they respond in saving faith. So we've been summoned to God. God calls us first to himself in relationship with him. This is not like uh, when someone calls you on your phone, which there used to be a time where your phone was at home, physically tied to the wall. And if you weren't home, you couldn't answer it. Uh, now we have our phones with us all the time. And yet we were talking about earlier. Sometimes it's still hard to get a hold of people that they're busy or occupied where they're unable to answer. Sometimes they look at it. I mean, not me. <laughs> but some people would pick it up. Actually, I try not to do this uh, at all. <coughs> yeah, yeah. Blame everything bad. We'll just blame my brother uh, who would pick it up. Oh, you meant that, Jason. Never mind. <laughs> it's both. Uh, pick it up and go. Yeah, I'm not answering that. Put it down. I'll deal with that later. And sometimes we think that's what salvation is like. Our choice to answer, not answer. Oh, I'll deal with this later. Uh, we're talking about an effective calling that God accomplishes in calling dead sinners to himself. Uh, Os Guinness, first and foremost, we are called to someone that is God. Uh, 
not to something such as motherhood, politics, or teaching, or to somewhere such as the inner city or outer Mongolia. So again, Osgen is saying, first and foremost, we are called to someone. That, that's the initial calling. The most important thing about us is that we were called to someone. Why so important? The gospel establishes Jesus as the focus of any sense of calling. Another quote for you. There's no call to the ministry that is not first a call to Christ. You dare not lift your hand to place God's name in blessing on his people until you first have clasped them in penitent petition for his saving grace. Until you have done that, the issue, the issue you face is not really your call to ministry. It is your call to Christ. Uh, Martin Luther, specifically in his call into ministry, noted how many unconverted priests were leading God's people and then leading them astray, leading them away from God's word, leading them away from faithfulness to the church. The gospel fixes our identity in Christ, not in a call to ministry. So Luke chapter 10, uh, this is verses 1 and 2 and then 17 and through 20. Verse 1, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Verse 17, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to dread on serpents, scorpions, and over all power of the enemy. Nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. The gospel promises sufficient grace to hear and respond to any call to ministry. Uh, Without the gospel, there would be no ears to hear. And God is not afraid that you're going to miss the call. So uh, just a couple thoughts on that. Uh, Think about when the instruction is given to the early believers that said, don't even give any thought to what you're going to say when you get dragged in court and your life is on the line, your reputation is on the line, your freedom is on the line. He said, in that moment, the Holy Spirit, it will be given to you what you are to say. Now that is a terrible verse to try and bring in as a precedent to what preaching preparation should look like on a Sunday morning, right? Although I've been so tempted at times to try and use that as an illustration, but it would be to the detriment of the people. I also think it would be fantastic at some point, and I'm just going to share this here so that I don't ever do it out there. Uh, When there is a lack of commitment and consistency and uh, people either fail to show up for an obligation or view uh, their participation in the group as hit or miss, take it or leave it. I would love to just show up on a Sunday morning sometime and get like all through the singing and the announcements be like, guys, I would love to, um, you know, share the word with you, but man, I've got I got a car that's not working and this is, this is the only time I have all week. My week's super busy. I got to go home and work on that. I, I mean, I would have loved to be here with you. I'll see you later. And I don't know why uh, either car or house are the two most frequent when people are like, 
man, I have no time this week. I had to stay home and work on my house. I won't do it. But the, tempta- the temptation's there, brothers and sisters. I'm sharing it with you. <sighs> you are my temptation. Don't do this to me. All right. So whatever God speaks to us in the future, where we should go, what we should do, uh, he has already spoken the most important things that he could ever say through the cross. All right, that the gospel is actually the foundation. It's the cornerstone of all of our life and ministry, not your talents, abilities, or aspirations. So the caller, number two, links the gospel to ministry. Uh, Remembering our real treasure. Uh, Real treasure is not how big of a church we can grow, how influential of a ministry that we can have. Uh, All you have to do is look at giant popular ministries who have lots of influence and just wait until they show up in the news because it's it's coming it it just corrupts everything Uh, remember second samuel 6 when god kills uzziah they're they're moving uh, the ark of the covenant and they rather foolishly rather than following god's design for how the ark of the covenant was to be carried it had these little rings for these poles to go in and men to carry it they put it on a cart which was never part of God's um, design for how he was to be worshipped or honored. And then the cart was driving on 1000 West. (laughs) Which looks like it's a street in the Ukraine right now. Someone's going to listen to this in the future and be like, I have no idea what those two references are. Just completely filled with potholes and the cart lurches and Uzziah is rightfully afraid that the cart is is going to tip and the Ark of the Covenant, this symbol of God's presence with his people, is going to fall and be broken on his watch. And so what does he do? He reaches out his hand and he grabs it and steadies it. And what does God do in response to his desire to safeguard the things of God? Strikes him dead. (laughs) now we can look at that and go was god touchy was he having a bad day like did he just he had a bad he didn't understand uzziah's heart that's what it was uzziah had a heart for ministry and serving the things of god and god struck him down what a jerk well that's not it at all that god has first and foremost as the creator as the caller rightly determined how he is to be worshipped and honored. He has rightly set the parameters in which we are to live and worship and minister. And when we step outside of that, we do it at our own peril. Not because God is hateful towards us, but because God is righteous towards himself in all things. All right. Uh, We are prone to treat the gospel like Uzziah treated the Ark of the Covenant. As just some average, ordinary piece of furniture, some something that is in our life, take it or leave it. By the way, we can treat ministry in the same way. As opposed to uh, deep respect for God's work that he is accomplishing through us. Uh, but we don't really think about the amazing treasure that it is. Not just ministry, the fact that God has called you, has saved you. When we forget that, we will forget what john newton famously penned as amazing grace as a former uh, slave trader who worked in that industry 
now a pastor who could never quite look at his own hands through the robes of ministry in the role of minister and not see the hands that are stained with the slavery that once defined him. And that awareness of sin lurking in his own heart, that greatness that God would save him, is why it's not just a catchy melody. Non-Christians look at the song Amazing Grace and hold it with reverence. Man, it, it shapes the minister when he's reminded in humility, this is who I am apart from Christ. This is the great lengths to which God has gone to save the call to ministry is a call to the gospel. Those two are bound together. Our, our response to the gospel and our ministry of the gospel. So Paul, just looking at him, described himself as set apart for the gospel in Romans 1.1. Said he was in the priestly service of the gospel of God, Romans 15.16. Of this gospel, I was made a minister, Ephesians 3.7. I am put here for the defense of the gospel, Philippians 1.16. Paul calls Timothy a co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith, 1 Thessalonians 3, 2. For Paul, it was always and only about the gospel. Leaders with the gospel and through the gospel. So here's a quote from D.A. Carson. It is now commonplace to confess that evangelicalism, uh, by the way, that, that word just means gospel-centered, so that gospel-centered churches are fragmenting. To the extent that this is true, it is utterly imperative that we self-consciously focus on what is central, on the gospel of Jesus Christ. That means we must resolve to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified, 1 Corinthians 2.2. In exactly the same way that Paul made that resolution, this will shape our vision of ministry as much as it will shape our grasp of the centrality of the gospel. To know nothing else except Jesus and Him crucified. Not myself as minister and my personality and charisma. Uh, not my desire for love and respect from the people that I serve. Not my desire for visible fruit of a large and growing church. Or a certain type of church. Or a certain type of ministry that I would like to see come about. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That, that is the center of it all. The gospel targets the real problem in us and the real reason for ministry. Uh, the real problem in us is sin. Not just the people we're called to serve. This is our problem as well. The real reason for ministry is to declare the gospel. So the problem is sin and sinfulness. Therefore, as uh, leaders, as ministers, we should not be surprised when people sin. We should not be surprised when people sin against us. I sat with a couple a while back who had gone through a difficult time and there had been a, a break in fellowship and by God's grace that was restored and I, I sat with them and one of the things that I said to them is I need to, I need to just repent before you for the way I emotionally reacted to what you said and did. Because I had a long history with them of seeing bad emotional and verbal reactions towards each other. And then I'd have, as pastor would have to step in and mediate, I, I saw 
repeated times through the years of bad emotional and verbal reactions towards other people, either in the church or outside of the church. And oftentimes I would have to step in and either mediate or counsel. And I'm like, I was not prepared when that attitude and words got aimed at me and I responded badly. And I'm sorry. Now, I should have seen it coming, right? We, we need to constantly be preparing our hearts. The problem in me and the problem in you is sin and selfishness and pride that just go right on down the list. But when it gets aimed at us, it's really easy in the moment to forget, well, that's the same problem I have. And the remedy is the same as well. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the truth spoken in love. It's the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the forgiveness by the power of Christ's sacrifice. Uh, people tend to avoid the bad news of the gospel because they want to soft pedal that these days. And yet there is no bad news. There is no good news if you don't start with the bad news. Right? Uh, yeah, well, I'm just going to leave that there. I, I had a good example using John's head, but uh, someone listening to this 10 years from now will not know anything about that. I'll say it anyway. So uh, <laughs> John and I were talking the other day that he had, he had this sort of like, you know, too much time in the sun with a bald head and, uh, you know, one of those precancerous looking things. It was on the back, right? And so they treated the whole head with that uh, chemo in a tube stuff and basically said any area that is affected uh, is going to show up even if you can't see it right now. And then what came was just all these spots on the front and on the top that looked like nothing was there until they were revealed by the process. Uh, what we tend to do is we look at that one spot of revealed sin in somebody's life. And then we try and downplay it and soft sell it because we think, well, the best thing I can do for you is spare your feelings in this. Like, I don't want to make you feel bad about it. Even though I, I know the remedy is the gospel. I, I don't want to make you feel bad about it. So we, we go really soft on it. And you could have done that for John's poor head. And that one spot in the back would have probably been dealt with, but all of the stuff underneath the surface that God wanted to get at because he loves John and wants to spare him from full-on skin cancer down the road would have gone undealt with, uncovered. Does that make sense? Yeah, which is why John's like, yes. <laughs> which is why if our ministry is the gospel being applied towards sin in our lives and other people's lives, man, we... We, number one, should never, Matthew 7, stand in judgment over somebody else, right? We're, we're guilty of the same thing. And number two, we should never shy away from saying, brother and sister, man, this is, this is sin that lies before you and God's grace is greater. His mercy is more. All right. Uh, quote from John MacArthur. Christians are rapidly losing sight of sin as the root of human woes. And many Christians are explicitly denying that their own sin can be the cause of their personal anguish. No, no, no. It's all, have you noticed this? It's always someone else. Someone else has done this to me. More and more are attempting to explain the human dilemma in wholly unbiblical terms. 
It's their temperament. It's their addiction. It's dysfunctional families. It's the child within. It's codependency. A host of irresponsible escape mechanisms promoted by secular psychology. Now, those phrases in themselves aren't bad. I'll just put a caveat in here. Unless, of course, we're using them to mask the sin that lies beneath. Why are people codependent? Because of sin, right? Uh, the potential impact of such a drift is frightening. Remove the reality of sin and you take away the possibility of repentance. Abolish the doctrine of human depravity and you void the divine plan of salvation. Erase the notion of personal guilt and you eliminate the need for a savior. Obliterate the human conscience and you will raise an amoral and unredeemable generation. Not unredeemable because God can't save them because they see themselves having no need for redemption. The church cannot join hands with the world in such grossly satanic enterprise. To do so is to overthrow the very gospel that we proclaim. So we don't help people by avoiding bad news. The good news of the gospel begins with the bad news of our sinfulness. We tend to be slow to apply good news. So take John Newton, who we mentioned a minute ago with Amazing Grace. Uh, it, it was a period of time and years as God revealed, opened his heart, convicted his heart of sin that transformed him. Think about your life. Like someone spoke the truth to you and you heard part of it, rejected most of it. And it was a period of time. Now, most of us can look at a time where it feels like God turned the light bulb on, right? That's some moment of revelation or suffering into which the gospel just stepped in as glorious. But even in that, there is a period of time. I was just talking with uh, Pastor John before we started how if I could look back 20 years through time and have a conversation with 22, 23, 24-year-old me, it would be very different because through that time, uh, God has opened my eyes to things lurking in my heart I didn't even know anything about. Same is true for you. Uh, Newton wrote that song in 1748 when during a terrible storm in, in the night, uh, God inspired him by the glory of God considering his sin to write this song. Again, like Luther, uh, inspired in the night in the midst of some terrible storm and yet it brings flooding all the weight and consequence of our sin uh, we can live with our sin for a long time it's not until we are confronted with the mortality of our consequential choices that most of us stop and acknowledge our need for a savior get this he continued to trade slaves for 10 years after writing that song If that was modern day, like Bethel music, we wouldn't sing his song. Which is why we also pray for God's work of transformation in them. Uh, <laughs> he would uh, arrive with his cargo, those were people, and deliver them. He would go off for long walks and pray and meditate on scripture. He would go to church and he would worship with God's people for 10 years. Eventually, he had an epileptic fit and couldn't manage his ship anymore. He began to, in the, the moment where he lost his ability to just go on with business as normal, to stop and contemplate and confront the horror that is slavery. 
10 years. Just I, think about this for a second, because think about the things that you have been so convinced of in your own heart for maybe a decade. After that, he couldn't speak for more than 30 minutes without referencing what a great sinner he was, what a gracious God he served. What if he'd come to our church at year three? Seven more years of slave trading lay ahead of him. Friends, the call to ministry is the call to serve sinners with the gospel. Patiently serve sinners with the gospel. We could have said all the right things to him, and for seven years he would have rejected it. Patient servants. The reason is sinners need the gospel. Jerry Bridges says this, the reality of present-day Christendom is that most professing Christians actually know very little of the gospel, let alone understand its implications in their day-to-day lives. My perception is that most of them know just enough gospel to get inside the door of the kingdom. They know nothing of the unsearchable riches of Christ. So number three, the caller connects the call to the church. This is why... We're putting a really heavy footfall on God's connecting his people, his leaders, his ministers to the local church. God doesn't call people to ministry in isolation. The need for ministry exists because there is a context for ministry. Biblically, that is the church. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So why, why is it that we do what we do? Why is it that you do what you do as faithful servants of Jesus, that the entire body might be built up and the saints, that's all of us in the congregation, might be equipped for works of ministry? Acts 13, 1-3. Now there were in the church in Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, and Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them out. So what's the context? All right, class, let's interact so you don't fall asleep. What's the context of God speaking and calling Barnabas and Saul through the leaders of the church. church. Where did it happen? Don't think building happened in the church, right? In, In the congregation when they were praying and fasting together, how did it happen? Well, it happened through prophets and teachers it happened through the people who were there god calls barnabas and saul who uh, later because of his ministry of the gentiles is going to take his greek name which is paul does so by telling who the church the leadership team this wasn't like they're they're praying and fasting and and saul goes man guys i got an idea I really feel like I could do something. 
I got some skills, yo. We don't find any of that. We find the church leaders coming to them together, hearing from the Lord saying, yes, separate Barnabas and Saul. God had already powerfully called Saul already. uh, But in Acts 13, he's just a brother in the church. He's just one of the guys who's, who's learning, who's growing in his faith. He's waiting and serving in the local church. When he's launched into ministry, it's through the confirmation of the team of leaders that he was submitted to. We had a brother in the church several years ago who uh, came to a few of us and said, God has called me into ministry. Uh, He's called me to get a horse and ride around the United States, States and preach the gospel from this horse it's going to be an attractional thing people are going to come to see the guy who's on a horse preaching the gospel now coincidentally within a month or two previous to that uh there was a guy who came to shipshawana and did a sermon on the back of a horse called the sermon on the mount but i'm pretty sure that that didn't impact this guy's calling from jesus himself at all so we asked this brother now this is this is somebody who you know we know and like um so i we weren't being condescending like okay what do you know about horses to which he said and i was surprised absolutely nothing never had a horse in his life uh like what do you know about about raising support what do you know about fending for yourself on a permanent horseback camping trip nothing i've never done anything like this and we said brother you will die (laughs) this is this is not god's best for you uh this will result in your death now if you want to pursue this here are some steps that you can begin right now like you need to you need to learn some hardcore camping skills you need to learn some hardcore equestrian skills uh you need to deeply dive into the bible and accountability with other brothers or this calling will destroy you jump in start doing these things uh to the best of my knowledge uh the pizza that he ate the night before that led to that calling dissipated and he never pursued any of that that's what we call a desire not a calling right as opposed to god has put this on my heart i can't not do this right does that make sense okay oswald chambers said should it not be the office that seeks the man rather than the man that seeks the office? It's that pursuit that you cannot get away from. George Whitfield, who I deeply love. If you have not read a biography on George Whitfield, you should do it. Maybe not right now. We're going to throw a lot of reading at you. Uh, but super encouraging and challenging. Uh, he said, from the time I first entered university, especially from the time that I knew What was true and undefiled Christianity, I entertained high thoughts of the importance of the ministerial office and was not solicitous of what place should be prepared for me, but how I should be prepared for a place. Dang, that's good. Well, what about me? How do I fit in? How come you're not making room for me? That's usually what you hear in the church. As opposed to someone who is pouring in, preparing themselves for whatever that place may be. 
That is our challenge to you. That's actually what the next two years is all about. This isn't like some college thing where we have a job fair halfway through and we try and uh, set your future ministry job for you. You need to be deeply preparing yourself for whatever place, whatever uh, ministry niche God has set aside for you. Don't worry about the place that is prepared for you. Worry about what you are doing to be prepared for that place. A growing trend what happens when calling is dislocated from the church? This is it's not just a growing trend. It's a frightening trend. Uh, it draws men to satisfy their call outside of the church. In the New Testament, ministry is defined in reference exclusively to the local church. Now, you can make the argument, well, what about Paul? He was going out to the Gentiles, and what did he do? Established local churches. That's what he did. Uh, this outside call distracts men from evaluating their call through the church. So parachurch ministries and organizations are not bad at all. I'll give you another example, even though I was, I believe, called a jerk in the, uh, <laughs> the break time that we had. Uh, Chuck and Kareen were part of uh, PB&J. It was a loving jerk. <laughs> cool. Uh, for several years, which was a parachurch organization. It, it was a, a youth ministry, parachurch coming alongside, but not inside of a church. It didn't belong to EWC or some other church or denomination, right? You're tracking with me? Uh, but what Chuck and Corrine did in serving in that was viewed their role of ministry within that as filtered through their local church. So time after time, they would bring thoughts, concerns, directions uh, to the eldership of the church to which they were submitted and hopefully most of the time received wise counsel. They at least received counsel, right? We can agree on that. Uh, and a couple times, uh, corrective counsel, like don't, don't go this direction or... I think it would be best to shut the doors and what they did in serving in that ministry honored the Lord, honored the local church and served those kids so well that it has, again, opened up this giant door for both of them in the school system right now, just parachurch, but they, their activity was under the local church. Does that make sense? And they're like, shut up and don't talk about us anymore. Uh, but it's actually, it's a great example of that. Seth. Uh, the same thing is true for mission work. The churches suck so bad about sending missionaries that we have all these parachurch missionary organizations because the church hasn't faithfully sent out missionaries. <coughs> so in its place, God has raised up missionaries out of unfaithfulness. Yep. Yep, absolutely. Uh, and... So great example. So uh, just in case for the recording, you couldn't hear it. Uh, same is true for missionaries. The church has been so bad at sending them out that other outside the church organizations have come up. Um, Destin and Jen going down to, ev to every tribe. Uh, and yet they have done such a good job uh, to every tribe and your parents of connecting that individually with the local church, partnering with pastors and elders and leaders in the development of, uh, I remember we went down to Texas and sat down and met with them. And they're like, these are your missionaries. You're the senders, not us. 
And I, I love that some organizations are rightly seeing that and saying, let's, let's get the boundaries right here. Uh, but recognizing that all of that actually flows through the local church, not through some great outside organization, which, by the way, is free from any of the biblical calls to eldership and leadership and oversight and pastors. It's just, hey, it's, it's our vision running 120 miles an hour. So praise God for faithful mission organizations. And it's good. All right. Okay. Uh, Charles Bridges quote here. Uh, we may sometimes face ministerial failure to the very threshold of the entrance into the work. Was the call to the sacred office clear in the order of the church and according to the will of God? Uh, Charles Bridges wrote a fantastic book on uh, the Christian ministry and the reasons for its ineffectiveness. And he basically points to all of the things that pastors and leaders are failing to do, whether it is serving or preparation. And you may have had a clear call, and yet even right up to the beginning of the entrance of it, like in your own heart, uh, it looks good right up until the start. There may need, I don't know, I, I tell couples this all the time when they're getting married, like, we're going to agree to do the premarital counseling with you. If there's a problem, uh, I will gladly pull the plug on this the week before the wedding and say, absolutely not. This is, this is not the joining of the Lord. We're not going to be a part of this. Um, you have to, it, especially for full-time ministry, that isn't necessarily a forever thing. It might just mean right now you're you're not in a place where you can sustain this. Destin and Jen, excellent example. One of the things that to every tribe told them is if you leave and you go do uh, frontier evangelism, church planting, missions work, every single thing that's lying beneath the surface of your marriage is going to come to the surface, which is why you have to deal with it all right now or we're not sending you. There's still going to be things that come up, but every single thing that needs dealt with uh, even right up to the moment, it's, it would be God's grace to say, absolutely not. We, we are not going to send you into that. Yep. Don't you think a lot of ministries are born out of the pain and the things that we've already gone through as opposed to going into with thinking it's wonderful and glorious, you know? Yeah, it, it, a lot of ministry things are because we've gone through really difficult times. It's seen God work in the midst of our brokenness. And then it opens our eyes to see the brokenness in other people around us. And we're like, somebody's got to do something. I think that somebody's me. <laughs> Absolutely. Good. Uh, in Philippians, I think, I can't remember which chapter. Nice and loud there, whisperer. Oh, Philippians 2 uh, says, We praise the God of all comfort who comforts us in all of our afflictions, so that once we have been comforted, we can comfort others in the way in which we were comforted. So yeah, absolutely. God uses that in our lives so that we can minister to others. Or not. Like mine was born out of not being comforted. So, so you make sure nobody else experiences that. Yeah. As well, God comforts. Right. Yeah. yeah. Good. So if we, if we fail to, uh, for lack of a better word, have all of our ducks in a row. And so let's say that using Kathy's example, that you step into the comforting ministry with a giant chip on your shoulder because, well, I wasn't comforted. 
Nobody else is going to go through that. Uh, you know, it just, you know, think of like the bravado and the, the arrogance that lies behind that. Nobody else is going to go through that. What happens is you get people in ministry with a giant chip on their shoulder and it bleeds into everything. Just absolutely everything that they touch, it becomes condescending. Uh, I was going to make a comment about a previous pastor in church, but I, I'll just reserve. I'm actually going to reserve that one. I'm not saying that one. Uh, but what you can see is an unveiling over time of the sin that was lurking in that person's heart the entire time, unaddressed. Uh, it, if we do that, it diverts attention away from the wisdom of God's plan for all who are called by Christ, which is Ephesians 3.10, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Not just to a watching world, to all of the spiritual world as well. That every demon in hell has to watch as the glory of God is put on display in his church. As God redeems sinners, sanctifies, calls them his own, and then puts his glory on display through them. Richard Baxter. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. That, so I love, <laughs> I love the, uh, the automotive illustration of the word manifold, which is not the word in Ephesians 3. It, it would be the many-fold wisdom of God. So the wisdom that looks like you and like you and nothing like you, but you're your own and nothing like you, you're your own, nothing like you, you're your own. And that's different and that's different and that's different and you think really different. And then there's this different. And then insert that little illustration that you just gave. And God takes all of those different. It's the diversity. And then he packs that into the church. And the church becomes like the automotive thing, the manifold that takes all of this and goes whoosh right in one direction. Like for the glory of God, that his glory gets put on display. That is a beautiful picture of what Ephesians 3.10 is pointing at that I would have never thought of because I am not a gearhead. <laughs> I'm a sunburned head. Okay. <laughs> Richard Baxter. Uh, Nor is a man fitted to be a minister of Christ who does not have a proper public spirit towards the church. There again, if you're coming in with a chip on your shoulder towards the church, uh, our church or any other church, man, be careful. That's a giant red flag. You, you know what sets me off? This isn't Richard Baxter. This is Matt Gingrich. When someone comes into church on, like they've been here two or three Sundays, and then they're like, oh my gosh, we love your church. It's so great. <laughs> Comma. The last church that we went to was awful, and, and they, they treated us terrible, and they did this, and they did that. You guys are so much better. You know what I think every time? I'm looking at the watch. I, I, I should write those dates down on a calendar, but I don't, because that would... That would be awful and probably sinful. Okay, <laughs> it's coming. He needs, this is Baxter again, he needs to delight in its beauty, long for its happiness, seek for its good, rejoice in its welfare. He must be willing to spend and be spent 
for the sake of the church. Number four, the caller executes the call through the gift of leadership. So looking at the gift of leadership, seldom explicitly referenced in scripture. That's why uh, (laughs) my dad is constantly quoting John Maxwell. You know, you don't find uh, a book in scripture that's just the leadership quotes, you know, Proverbs 34 or something like that. Uh, Truths drawn from scripture. I'm sorry, that's not off topic here. Uh, Often at work within the characters of scripture. So we see it in, in lives, we see it in narratives, in what they do. A very common in uh, historical and contemporary examples of ministerial effectiveness. Uh, quoted John MacArthur a little while ago. Uh, I will never forget that moment that John and I had at Together for the Gospel one time. Well, uh, to be fair, there were 13,000 other guys there too. But uh, they, were, they were giving away a set of John Maxwell's uh, Bible commentary, which... If you stack them all up, it stacks at least this high. Like, it's humongous, this giant life's work on the Bible. And they decided they were going to give two sets of it away. One to the person who had been in ministry the least amount of time in a church, in the same church, and which the guy had literally started that week. It was, it was week one for him. And so they called him up, you know, like 12,000 guys, like, yay! And he comes up, all right, who's been in ministry in the same church the longest? So they start doing the, the wedding thing, you know, like, all right, if you've been married 10 years, sit down. You know, if you've been in the same church 10 years, sit down. 20 years, sit down. 30 years, sit down. 40 years, sit down. 50 years, sit down. There's just like a handful of guys out of 12,000, right? We told you the stats of quitting at the beginning, right? Only a handful of guys who served faithfully in the same pulpit ministry for over 50 years. One was like 55, one was like 56. And uh, right as they were saying, come up here, one of the guys on the stage said, wait a minute. MacArthur's been in his church 60 years. Like the guy who wrote the commentary out of everyone in the room had been in the same pulpit ministry serving faithfully through thick and thin the longest. They're like, you just won your own books. <laughs> and in that moment, MacArthur looked directly at me and he went, Matt gets it. He understood. <laughs> I mean, it was, I, I think he was looking at, I can't say for sure. It was on a video screen mostly where I saw his eyes, but uh, <laughs> I think they actually gave the books to one of the other guys. Uh, but there's just examples of uh, gospel faithfulness in some of these people's lives, which is way more important than how many people come to their church. We measure by the wrong numbers. How many people come to their church? Man, you can do all the right thing, all the wrong things and have a huge church. You can't do all the wrong things and stay in the same church for 60 years. You won't do it. Your heart won't survive it. That is essential to our understanding of calling. Romans 12, 3 through 8. You want to talk about a guy who withstood all of the thick and thin, hard difficulties? That's Paul. Verse 3, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. 
For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So leadership development is an act of God's grace. It is God's grace from start to finish that produces the man of God. We found in just in that passage, he said, for the grace given to me or gifts that differ according to the grace of God. It is all the gift of God, the work of God. By the way, the word grace means gift. So that's not anything that you earned, deserved, or developed. It is the gift of God. Leadership begins with grace supplied to us. 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, uh, again, give qualifications for elders. They must be. They must manage. They must not. They must have. There's these qualifications of things that must be met. Uh, Full of present tense verbs. In other words, he already has them. It doesn't say he will be, he might be, that he should be, that he must already be functioning in this role before we ever consider putting him in the office of ministry. Uh, These aren't burdens or even commandments that have to be followed. That checklist like, okay, you know, manage my household well, check. Able to teach, check. Uh, They are signs of the summons. They are signs of the call. They are evidence that we have been called. John Calvin said, Nobody may be called to the office of teaching except those God has already chosen in some way. Calvin is a great example. And with this, I'll turn it over to John. We'll just switch places for a while. Uh, Calvin had purposed his calling in his own mind uh, to go quietly at the beginning of the Reformation and be a quiet theologian and writer. He's going to help think and shape this Reformation. And he passes through Geneva uh, simply on his way to his retreat destination. And through a clandestine meeting, uh, it it was still illegal what they were doing, going against the Roman church at that time. Uh, The pastor comes and says, we have begun this great work in Geneva, but we have no teacher And Calvin said, not me. I'm going to lead a quiet life of thought and writing. And uh, this young floundering pastor says, may God curse your study if you do not stay and help us. Good night. (laughs) And uh, they went to bed in which Calvin did not sleep, but fretted all night upon his bed that God would in fact curse his study because this was the calling of the Lord upon his life, uh, which resulted in most of what we call the reformed tradition today. In fact, a lot of it actually bears his name as it gets called Calvinism, which I think is he would be ticked about. Uh, but most of the Reformed churches are direct descendants of his uh, influence within the church in Geneva. And most churches like us who are Reformed in uh, thought, even not in the name of our church, uh, 
are direct descendants of what he has done because he heeded that call of God to go to Geneva where he didn't want to go. All right. Pastor John. Don't mess this up. There's a lot right now. <laughs> I'll do my work uh, best. Best. So uh, continuing on with this, uh, some other points from this Romans 12 passage is that our gifts are distributed and apportioned by grace. Uh, that means whatever gift you have, it is the absolute grace of God that gave it to you. Uh, so sometimes we like to compare gifts. God gave you exactly the gift that he wanted you to have so that he could use you the way he wanted to use you. And there is no better gift for you than the one he gave you. So keep that in mind when uh, talking about spiritual gifts. And as these gifts are distributed and apportioned by God's grace, that means that it's, it's God's grace that determines the boundaries of our gifts and ministry. Uh, Edmund Clowney said this, Your sphere of action, your ministry in the service of Christ, is marked out by the gifts Christ has given you. In other words, God has given you these gifts, use them. And use them by the grace of God. And then Charles Spurgeon, ever the profound wordsmith, said this, Gentlemen, if you cannot preach, God did not call you to preach. Uh, seems pretty simple, but it's advice that has often gone unheeded, uh, not just in preaching, but in many areas of life and ministry. If you cannot preach, God did not call you to preach. Uh, in other words, if God has given you a spiritual gift, seek to use that gift. Don't seek to do something else. As Paul said uh, in Romans 12 as, all, as well, when he's talking about the body, you know, the, if the eye said, hey, I want to be an ear, well, you're going to be running into a lot of walls uh, because the eye is supposed to be an eye. So if you cannot preach, God did not call you to preach. And this is where uh, external confirmation can help us. Uh, sometimes we can't fully perceive our gifts on our own. Uh, they're revealed within the community, the community of the church. And the grace of God has gifted some to lead, to, to direct, assist, arrange, apply oneself. Uh, it's interesting, the, the word that Paul uses when he talks about to lead is the same word that means captain of a ship that says, this is where we're going, uh, that God has lead it, leaded some people, gifted some people to lead. He's leaded some people to gift. Uh, that's what I was about to say. I told you not to mess it up. <laughs> Man. Well, Aiden, you're omniscient. You want to take over? <laughs> it still sounds like you're saying I know you're going to be Omniscient. 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 <laughs> the grace of God has gifted some to lead. And this, the grace of this gift manifests in zeal for God in the church. Not, not just emotions, but a true zeal for God and his church. Uh, you know, having gifts, let us use them. Uh, Edward Clowney, Edmund Clowney also said this, God's call to service normally comes in service. In other words, as you are actively serving, you realize this is what I want to do. This is satisfaction. This is fulfillment. This is joy in God for me 
uh, joy in God for me. God's call to service normally comes in service. So I've got an illustration of that. That it's actually a two-sided illustration. Uh, when we were serving at this internship of this church in Sturgis, they had a need in their sixth grade boys Sunday school class, somebody to teach it. And I'm like, uh, I don't think that's for me. But there's a need in the body of Christ. This isn't about me. It's about a need in the body of Christ. I will do it as long as I can. And I did it, and it was constant frustration from start to finish. Like, I didn't have the grace with these middle school age boys that I should have. And uh, the class became more and more tense and frustrating until we had parents who were not thrilled with uh, <laughs> their sons continuing in this class. And six months later, the pastor came and said, I feel like God's saying this isn't the place for you. I'm like, really? It took God speaking because I told you that six months ago. Uh, I had enough self-awareness to go like, yeah, this is not good. Uh, on the flip side, some of the things, like I, I gave the illustration of coming back from that church, feeling kind of broken and beat up, and we don't want to serve in ministry, and immediately doing something to facilitate the music ministry I couldn't get away from. Since that day, that was 20 years ago, I have not taught another sixth grade boy's Sunday school class. <laughs> now, I, I actually think I could do great at it now. I have a lot of those rough edges got knocked off. Uh, my patience, my ability to hear the kids, be present with the kids, much better. Uh, I'm still not volunteering for the gig. Like, if it comes along, I'll do it. Uh, but... It's a good example of, okay, where has God gifted you and where hasn't he gifted you? And most of us are aware of the haves. It's the have-nots that are the blind spot behind us. But you better find those out as quick as you can so that what you're doing is effective and fruitful. It's not frustrating for you, but will be a joy to you and those that you serve. <laughs> what is that to say, should you step into a role you know you're not called into? Or wait for somebody to take over, or let the chips fall where they may. Mm -hmm. So, uh, should you it, just for the recording, should you step in to a role that you know isn't a good fit for you? If you do, you step in really, really carefully, and. Uh, with an eye to raise up ministry helpers and like someone who it is that you're you're constantly you, you just became a one-person search committee for like let's find this thing um, now nobody told me that when i was dumb in 24 like hey this is actually revealing something in your heart not these kids sixth grade boys are the same in every generation the problem lies within you so it, it can be something god uses to refine you but um we had a, a lady, she hadn't been a part of our church for a long time, so I can tell this story, who uh, we were taking meals to, uh, it was either a new mom or somebody who was a, just got out of the hospital, had surgery, and we asked her about taking a meal 
And it was it was back in the day where the church was small enough where you just had to ask everyone. And um, she's like, ah, God hasn't spoken to me on that, so I don't do anything unless the Lord directs me. So I'm going to wait for Him to speak to me on that because that that's not my gifting. To which we said, incorrect. <laughs> You've been called to love one another. Uh, you're going to eat food. You can share food. Like that actually would be your gifting, and mm-hmm. it was a failure to love is what happened. And so that that would be a good example of like maybe that's not your gifting. Of course, I'm going to do it for a little bit of time. You know, mm-hmm. just as a filling. Now, if you do it, assuming that it all rests upon you, that's good. You're going to be frustrated. You're going to burn out super fast and be bad for the people that you're serving in many as well. Mm-hmm. That's why Paul Peter gives the exhortation and warning to operate your gifts according to the grace that God has given and not according to your own willpower, energy, zeal, personality. Yeah. Fill in the blank there, yeah. Uh, well, and what we normally think is my, my personal gifting and charisma is going to see me through this thing. And so, you know, that's not my thing, but I can make this work. And if we're missing what we talked about earlier, that walking hand in hand with spiritual accountability within the local church, who you can go and go, man, man, I'm super frustrated with uh, Bob's kid, because it was Bob's kid I was super frustrated with. And he is, uh, <laughs> is a Bob in church now? He is so <laughs> getting under my skin every single Sunday. What should have happened is I should have had that conversation and they said, well, let's talk about your lack of patience. He, he, he's a 12-year-old boy. That, that's normal behavior. How are you loving him? How are you trying to bridge that gap? Rather than getting more and more frustrated, like, seriously, just sit down. Shut up. What is wrong with you? Can you see why I wasn't a great fit? <laughs> <laughs> and it, what ended up happening, I wasn't discipled. And he wasn't blessed. In fact, I ran into that kid 10 years later. And we ran into him at Walmart. And he comes over. He was super excited to see us. And was like talking with us. Like, oh, yeah. In fact, he was married. And he was telling his wife, like, yeah, this guy was a uh, uh, worship leader. And he actually taught my Sunday school when I was a kid. I'm like, oh, crap, he remembers that. (laughs) And then he goes, dude, you were super mean to me. (laughs) Just because of my lack of ability, it was my lack of accountability that I didn't grow and he wasn't blessed. So, I have a question. Uh, since we're kind of on the topic of gifts, I think what's what's an important step to figure it out as like this is the school of ministry class. Some of us aren't involved in ministry. What are those? big first steps to, if we don't know, to discover whether, like, we have the tip, like, the gift of teaching or, like, prophecy or, like, just wisdom in general. But, like, what's what's a good first couple of steps to get the ball rolling to actually figure out what would be a good fit for you? And on the flip side, what is it? Like you said. Uh, I think definitely... Two of the 
the tops on my list for how to discover is uh, serve. And again, you'll, that'll be a great way to discover this is or this is not. And uh, secondly is um, whether it's on your own or with a reliable study resource, um, study what the gifts are and how they're used in scripture. But I think uh, the most practical one is, is serve. And that'll be a great indicator of what may or may not be. There's some other things as well. But. Yeah, uh, Chuck just gave number three. Mm. Which say it, Chuck? Uh, talk to those who know you best. Yeah. Even even with those that you don't agree with. <laughs> <laughs> Probably especially. especially. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I have someone in my life that we don't see eye to eye a lot, and um, when I I said I was going to be doing this Spanish teaching gig, uh, which may be more than just a gig. Um, <laughs> He's like, that is absolutely where you belong. And I was like, really coming from you? And that person is 100% supporting, supportive of me being in that position. And that's, that actually weighs more than um, other people who uh, know me and, and get along with me well. Uh, saying, yeah, yeah, I see this gift in you. You know, for someone who, who's like, we don't see eye to eye to, to confirm that, that that's huge. Well, the awesome thing about people who don't see eye to eye with us is we only know that because they're honest with us. <laughs> All the people yep. who, no, we totally see eye to eye. We don't actually know the level of upfront honesty that they have towards us. Like, no, you're great. It's going to be good. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and mm -hmm. that, that's awesome. So, yeah, I would say... Uh, you need to get involved in serving things. Uh, get involved in serving behind the scenes. So practically, what, what does that look like? Uh, be serving in things behind the scenes in what Jesus referred to as washing one another's feet. Because within any church, small group, anything, there, there's going to be behind the scenes things that need facilitated. And get involved in that. See, see what that does to your heart. Like, man, I love doing this. Or, uh, I'm not loving this. And then be having conversations with somebody. Okay, what do you love and, and why do you love it? What do you not love and why not? Because you may love it because everybody's like, man, Carrie, thank you so much for doing that. Oh, we don't we appreciate Carrie, everybody? Oh, isn't it great? Mm -hmm. And you're like, yes, yes, appreciate it. Uh, mm -hmm. Maybe you don't love it because you have a certain level of pride that goes, nobody I want to do that job up front because everybody loves that guy. Mm -hmm. uh, and then get involved in things that are uh, maybe more, so behind the scenes, maybe some of the upfront stuff where mm -hmm. you overcome your fear of public speaking by signing up to read the scripture on a Sunday morning and then talk to your community group leader and go, hey, is there any way that I can leave the lesson one time next month or something like that? Uh, help out in the youth group. Like it, what can I do to build a relationship with kids? Is, is there a chance I could, you know, and by the way, don't offer to do the lesson if you never show up to youth group <laughs> or community. Man, I really, I want to use my gifts. I've never come to community group myself, but I want to teach it. I'd like to lead it, right? Why do you love it? Because you're egotistical maniac, right? That's usually why. Mm -hmm. So back it up, serve behind the scenes, and then, all right, so I let it, 
and I felt like I was going to die the whole time, and I hated it. Or I let it, I felt like I was going to die the whole time, and I loved it, and I have to do it again. You've you got to find what, what hooks mm -hmm. you in life, but you won't find it if it's always somebody else's job and I'm too busy. And, yeah, there's no, I'd like to do that, but I can't. Mm -hmm. So that's a really good practical question. And I would, I would say on both ends, we need to be tying it with accountability people in our life who are going to tell us what our gifts are and tell us when our butt's out. Yeah. That's why I ask. Yeah, because sometimes when it comes to spiritual gifts, we sometimes it's a fine line between spiritual gift and personality. And by talking to other people, it helps sometimes to define the line, oh, this is my personality, this is my spiritual gift. Uh, like for me, my personality is not to get up in front of people. But it is my spiritual gift, so I don't mind doing it when I'm operating it, operating in my spiritual gift. But like doing announcements on Sunday mornings makes me nervous. Getting up and preaching doesn't, because uh, this is the word of God. I'm operating in my gift, um, but yeah, I, I actually get I actually get nervous getting up and doing announcements on Sunday mornings. But so, uh, yeah, talking to other people can help sometimes define: is this a personality trait that can lead to building my ego, um, or is this where God has gifted me? Yeah. Which doesn't mean a lifetime commitment, right? That, that's not the person who has no boundaries and can't say no. Right. Yeah. Always <laughs> say yes. Always say Forever. why I always try to always never not say yes. Exactly. I don't even know what I just said. So, uh, but, so uh, it's recorded for posterity. Uh, so uh, ways that this, the gift of leadership uh, can be displayed, evaluated. Uh, one, an ability to, de to define and apply gospel-centered values. Um, seeing how the gospel can be applied in various situations uh, and always moving people toward the gospel, understanding that is where we need to move people to. Um, not a bigger, better this or a more relevant that, but always moving toward the gospel. Uh, an ability to uh, inspire a God-exalting response that builds the church, not a pastor-exalting response or a Sunday school teacher-exalting response, but a God-exalting response that builds the church. Uh, so moving people from information to transformation. And uh, Henry Blackaby said this, the primary role of spiritual leaders is not to merely accomplish tasks, but to take people from where they are to where God wants them to be. And I love that. It's not merely to accomplish tasks. Just stick them in a hamster wheel and you're doing great. That, that's not the purpose. It's not just to be doing something, 
but it take them from where they are to where God wants them to be. Uh, it's an ability to administrate uh, the leader's own gifting and the gifting of others, uh, being capable of organizing the gift in a way that bears fruit. Uh, and very importantly, an ability to lead and care for other leaders. Uh, and one quote I heard that I absolutely love is, he who leads when no one follows is only taking a walk. Uh, so it is an ability to actually lead others, being the kind of person that people want to follow as you try to point them toward the gospel, which means, remember, you're leading people, not just church members, faceless church members. It is people that you are ministering to, serving, and leading. Otherwise, you're just taking a walk. So an ability to lead and care for other leaders, uh, replicating, doing what you can so that other people will raise up, use their gifts, and leave to go serve and minister. So uh, Steve Nicholson, not to be confused with Jack, uh, says this, in a study by Todd Hunter of failed church plants in the vineyard, the number one characteristic associated with an unsuccessful church planter was this. They were unable to identify, recruit, train, and deploy lay leaders. It was an overwhelmingly prominent statistic. 95% of unsuccessful church planters failed in this category alone. The undeniable truth is it takes a person with a certain mix of gifts and catalytic abilities to pull off planting a church. And among the most important is that they have to be able to attract and lead other leaders. If a church planter can't lead people to Christ and nurture them, or can lead people to Christ and nurture them, but cannot develop and lead leaders, he will not be able to build a church much more than a large home group. So again, the ultimate aim of the leadership gift is this. God is glorified by people's growth. Keeping that in mind, God is glorified by people's growth. Uh, John Piper said, the goal of spiritual leadership is that people come to know God and glorify him in all they do. David Penman says this, no local church can afford to go without the encouragement and nourishment that will come to it by sending away its best people. Uh, it sounds almost counterintuitive. Let's raise up our best people so that we can send them away. Uh, but that is something no church can, can afford to go without. Uh, a church that does not do that will stagnate. Uh, the caller, again, we're talking about the caller. The caller inspires ambition for his gospel and his glory. Ambition can fire or fuel, or it can frustrate, disrupt your calling. So it can fire or frustrate your calling. Uh, William Shakespeare said this, but you didn't think we'd hear a quote from him in here, huh? William Shakespeare says this. Now I want to say it in an English accent, but I won't. Uh, I, it's a, <laughs> he says, <laughs> I won't be able to do it with a straight face. So uh, I charge thee, fling away ambition. By that sin fell the angels. I'll just say it dramatically there. Dramatic. Thank you. Thank you. So uh, I, charge thee, I, I charge thee, fling away ambition. 
by that sin fell the angels. Speaking of the pride of Satan, that arrogance, that ambition, by sin fell the angels. First uh, Timothy 3 says this, the saying is trustworthy. Uh, again, this one repeated over and over. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. But this ambition, this desire to uh, be an overseer, to be a leader, can be corrupted and is corrupted by selfishness. It can stir up the most sinful behavior that we are capable of. And we are capable of some pretty sinful behavior. But it can also be something wonderful. Um, it imitates something of God's character to, to take initiative, to create, to, to do. I love the way C.S. Lewis put it. He said, in relation to God, all of creation is, is feminine. In other words, God is always the initiator. He's, he's the one who takes the initiative to make things happen. And when we say, I want to be a leader and I want to train, I want to prepare to be that. That is part of that character of God that says, I'm going to take the initiative. I'm going to move towards this. I'm going to, I'm going to make things happen so that I will be prepared for the calling with which God has called me. Um, John Adams said, said this, that there is a natural passion for distinction in all men and women. women. Uh, and again, this is a noble thing. It reflects God's character. He is passionate to be distinct from his creation. That's, that's what his holiness means. It means other than. And he is passionate about that holiness. That is why, uh, as we were looking at 2 Samuel 6, Uzo was stricken because of not recognizing that holiness. God is other than and is always to be viewed and treated as other than. Passionate for distinction. Uh, so this is a noble thing that reflects God. And for us also, God is its object. Uh, he is the object of why we should be passionate for distinction because we want to be set apart, distinct for his purposes. Uh, and the desire to use our gifts for God's will and God's glory. That's where this untainted ambition comes in. The desire to use those gifts for his will, his glory. Uh, Romans 15 verses 20 and 21 say this, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Ambition to preach the gospel, uh, something that should be common in all of us. Uh, it should be the fuel for our ministry to preach the gospel. That should be our ambition. So that's ambition untainted, uncorrupted. What is corrupted ambition? What does it look like? James 3 verses 14 and 16 says, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, and I love how he says selfish ambition. Uh, today, especially in Christian circles, ambition is viewed as something negative. Um, but notice he doesn't say bitter jealousy and selfish, or bitter jealousy and ambition. He puts that qualifier on there, selfish ambition. So if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile 
practice. There will be a disorder and every vile practice. So the selfish ambition, it's ambition that's turned inward. Rather than seeking the glory of God and God's will, it centers on man as the means and end of our drive. Uh, what can I do to look the best? What can I do so that other people esteem me? What can I do so that other people put me on the pedestal that I belong on? Uh, Jonathan Edwards uh, said something along the lines that selfishness is confined self-love. Uh, that self-love is not necessarily the sin, but it is confined self-love. What does he mean by that? Husbands, love your wives as you love yourselves. So apparently loving yourself isn't a bad thing. Love your neighbor as yourself. Self-love isn't a bad thing. We, we should love who we are, but he's saying it's confined self-love. In other words, uh, it's, it's self-love that never moves beyond self-loves. Self-love. It's self-love that never recognizes I should love others the way I love myself. It is I should love myself and so should others. That's self-love. Uh, so, and it results in jealousy, a frustrated, selfish ambition. Uh, we love ourselves to the failure to love others. Uh, it's uh, seeing because I am the universe, they should not have what rightfully I deserve. Uh, it's, it's a jealousy. It's a frustrated, selfish ambition. And our souls tend to shrink in, in the light of this. Uh, Jonathan Edwards said, The ruin that the fall brought upon the soul of man consists very much in losing the nobler and more benevolent principles of his nature and falling wholly under the power and government of self-love. Before and as God created him, he was exalted, noble, and generous. But now he is debased and ignoble and selfish. Immediately, immediately upon the fall, the mind of man shrank from its primitive greatness and expandedness to an exceeding smallness and contractedness. Uh, people don't talk like that anymore, but I wish they did. That's, that's just really good. Uh, and Eli Stanley Jones said this, We grow small trying to be great. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Great Divorce. And one of his contemporaries had written a book called The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. And C.S. Lewis said, There is no such thing. So in response, he wrote The Great Divorce. Uh, the Great Divorce of, of Heaven and Hell. And it's an allegory where people in hell get to take a bus trip to heaven for the day. And it's described from the view of one of the denizens of hell. And he goes and gets on the bus and the bus takes off. Not, it's not going on a road. It takes off and they're flying up this enormous cliff and they get to the top of the cliff. And he realizes that what that cliff was, was actually a crack in the soil of heaven. And the point C.S. Lewis was making that if you take all of the evil and hatred and selfishness of all mankind, it makes us all so very small compared to the holiness and majesty and goodness of who God is. Uh, and so that's what I think of with this uh, quote from Eli Stanley Jones, that we grow small trying to be great. The more we try to exalt ourselves the smaller and smaller we truly are in character and heart and soul. 
So what does the gospel say to my selfish ambition? Well, the gospel reminds me that God controls all those in power. Proverbs 21 says this, The king's heart is a stream of water in the land, hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Uh, when Karen and I wanted to be in a relationship, her parents said no. Uh, uh, I had gone to her, her parents, and they said no. And so that was that. Uh, and I remember it was a Monday morning, and I was having my quiet time, and I was actually reading this passage. Uh, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And I immediately thought of Care's parents that, you know, if God wanted us to be in a relationship, if God wanted us to be married, then he could turn um, the heart of Care's parents. And in my super spiritualness, I said, Lord, I know you can do this, but you're not going to. And even if you do, it's going to take forever. Anybody else ever like that with God? Um, so I read that on Monday. That Wednesday, Kara's mom came to me seeking my forgiveness for how they handled that whole situation. And on Friday, she told Kara, you're never going to find anybody better than John. And then I had to go and ask her forgiveness for somehow deceiving her to think that. But, uh, but that passage is so good when it comes to leadership understand that God is in control and that he can, when he wants to, according to his own desires, turn the king's heart just like uh, a stream of water. He turns it wherever he will. And then John 19, 11 says this, Jesus answered him, speaking of Pilate, Jesus answered Pilate, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Uh, Romans 13 says, uh, there is no authority except that which has been established, put in place by God. So our place in ministry, our place in leadership is his choice. And there will be no liberty in your ministry until you realize this. You will be bound to selfish ambition until you realize my ministry is where God puts me. My ministry is where God places me. Um, all right. Personal anecdote there. Is that your personal anecdote or Jason's? Jason's. All right. Well, he used to let his daughter drive the car. <laughs> Do you know that one? I don't. So she, she would sit in his lap and think that she was really driving, but he was really the one controlling everything. So that's one that probably most parents uh, can associate with and where... You know, you put your kid in your lap and they've got the wheel. Uh, actually, I did this with Killian just the other day. And man, he, he loved it. He loved it, turning that wheel and uh, telling Kara, I drove the car. So, uh, Jason did that to me and I never realized I wasn't driving. <laughs> <laughs> just That's whole. <laughs> that's hilarious so, so the point is we're just sitting on God's lap he's the one controlling the steering wheel he's the one controlling the accelerator and the brake and the awesome thing about him is that when we get to heaven he'll tell us well done thou good and faithful servant <laughs> what an amazing God he does it all and then says by the way good job very gracious incredible God that we serve John Calvin said this, 
In short, he prepares and fits us to enter on our own to enter on our course and by his power leads us on to the end of the race. He prepares and fits us to enter our course and by his power leads us on to the end of the race. And Charles Spurgeon, who you, you might have heard of, uh, said this, I sought not to come to you, for I was a minister of an obscure and affectionate pe- but affectionate people. I never solicited advancement. The first note of invitation from your deacons came quite unlooked for, and I trembled at the idea of preaching in London. I could not understand how it, how it had come about. Even now, I am filled with astonishment at the wondrous providence. I would wish to give myself into the hands of our covenant God, whose wisdom directs all things. He shall choose for me, and so far as I can judge, this is his choice. This is the mindset for all of ministry. I am where God wants me. And even in the times where you would rather be anywhere else, that is what we fall back on. But Lord, this is where you have me. Therefore, as painful, inconvenient, uncomfortable as it is, there is no better place for me to be. If it's where God has you, that is the absolutely best place. Because sometimes in leadership, you think you're ministering to other people, but it's God actually shaping you through the people that you might consider sandpaper in your life. And then the gospel reminds us that before Christ died for us, he emptied himself for us. And let me say it this way. The gospel reminds me that before Christ died for me, he emptied himself for me. Thomas Watson said this, if we have not what we desire, we have more than we deserve. A humble man is willing to have his name and gifts eclipsed so that God's glory may be increased. He is content to be outshone by others in gifts and esteem so that the crown of Christ may shine the brighter. This is the humble man's motto. Let me decrease, let Christ increase. It is his desire that Christ should be exalted, and if this is affected whoever is the instrument, he rejoices. Some preach Christ of envy. They preach to take away Paul's hearers. Well, says he, Christ is preached, and therein I rejoice. That's from Philippians 1. A humble Christian is content to be laid aside if God has any other tools to work with, which may bring him more glory. So if you have been working with a person, trying to bring them to the Lord for five years, and then somebody moves in next door to them and presents the gospel once and they get saved, do you go, I've been talking to them for five years and that guy comes along and steals my fruit? Well, then you got the wrong idea. It was never your fruit. It was God's. So a humble Christian is content to be laid aside if God has any other tools to work with, which may bring him more glory. Be willing to be laid aside. Be willing to not be the person who gets to lead masses and droves of people. Be content to be the 14th link in a 15-link chain. So, in other words, the 15th link is the person who gets the fruit. Be content to be the 14th link. The cross reminds me that the path to eternal greatness is not ascending, but descending. 
the unique road into ministry is that we don't always run directly towards it. We run at character and service, then ministry is a result. Uh, I know someone who uh, hold has held three different positions of leadership in in churches, and he never sought any of them. Every single one of them, somebody called and said, "Would you be interested?" Or somebody who knew him said, "Would you be interested?" Um, he didn't run towards positions in ministry, it, but it goes back to what we said: how uh, we prepare ourselves and look at character and service, and other people recognize that call, and then they are. That's how God calls us into ministry. We don't run at the position; we run towards character and service. And then God, through his people, recognizes that call in our lives. And the cross reminds me that I can be content with God's approval. Uh, A friend of mine uh, often says that when he preaches, his one goal is to hear the applause of nail-scarred hands. That's his whole... If people come up and say, great job, great message, he's gracious and accepting it. But what he really wants to be content with is the applause of nail-scarred hands. A.W. Tozer said this, Few sights are more depressing than that of a professed Christian defending his supposed rights and bitterly resisting any attempt to violate them. Such a Christian has never accepted the way of the cross. The sweet graces of meekness and humility are unknown to him. He grows every day harder and more acrimonious as he defends his reputation, his rights, his ministry against his imagined foes. Again, recognizing our ministry is not our ministry, it is God's. And he has graciously invited us to be part of his ministry and his mission by giving us gifts that he can use to complete his mission through us. Jonathan Edwards says this, Humility tends in the first place to prevent an aspiring and ambitious behavior against men. The man that is under the influence of a humble spirit is content with such a situation amongst men as God is pleased to allot him and is not greedy of honor and does not affect to appear uppermost and exalted above his neighbors. He acts on the principle of that saying of the prophet Jeremiah, Seekest thou great things for thyself? Seek them not. And also the injunction of the apostle, Mind not high things. You seek great things for yourself? Don't. That that's what you're looking for? Stop it! As (laughs) some people will get that. All right. (laughs) Spurgeon and ambition. Again, if you've never heard of Charles Spurgeon, uh, Spurgeon and ambition. His father wanted him to attend Stepney College. Uh, It was one of the, the top Baptist colleges in England at the time. And this, you attend that particular school and you're almost assured of an incredible ministry opportunity. And uh, he went to meet the principal for an interview and the maid uh, showed him to the wrong room. And he waited and waited, waited. Finally, the principal left because, well, he was in the wrong room. That's not the room the principal is coming to. So as he was walking that afternoon, a loud voice said, Seekest thou great things for thyself? Seek them not. 
and he immediately settled himself to return to his little village church with just a handful of people. Remember, we read that quote just a little while ago from him about he had no idea and was actually scared of the, even the, the concept of preaching in London. He was content to return to his little village church with just a handful of people, and then God called him to London. He didn't seek to go to London. He was content to be where God put him, and then God took him and put him where he wanted him. So he, Charles Spurgeon has this to say, If you happen to have lived in obscurity and have never entered the lists for honors among your fellow men, be content to run well your own course and fulfill truly your own vocation. To lack fame is not the most grievous of ills. It is worse to have it like the snow that whitens the ground in the morning and disappears in the heat of the day. What does it matter to a dead man that men are talking of him? I love that last. What does it matter to a dead man that men are talking of him? It's a rhetorical question, but the answer is it doesn't. He's dead. What does it matter to a dead man that men are talking of him? In ministry, in leadership, be content to be where God places you and take joy in the fact that God, the creator of the universe, has even chosen to place you in a position of ministry, a position of service, or a position of leadership. Because trust me, he didn't do it because you're awesome. He didn't do it because I'm awesome or because Matt is awesome. He did it because it's an incredible grace and mercy. He chooses to use imperfect vessels to get across his perfect mission. All right, I think we're going to break for lunch. So uh, there's some pizza down there. Uh, if you brought food, we'll just eat together and share some fellowship. And we'll start up in about an hour, about 1 o'clock. So if you didn't bring anything and you hate pizza and you want to go get something, we're going to try and start at about 1. Lesson four, the call to character. The call to ministry is a call to character. Again, desire is important. A, a want to be involved in ministry, a, a want to uh, serve the church and serve God's people is important. Gifting is critical. Like what has God gifted you to do? But nothing is more vital than character. Absolutely nothing. It, you can be the most gifted speaker, a charismatic person who brings people together, gathers a crowd. And if your character isn't there to support it, all of those gifts and talents will end up crushing you and it will fall upon those people that you are serving, uh, attempting to minister to, you'll end up damaging them. No amount of gifting or subjective impressions, no powerful personality, no personal encounter with God have the ability to trump character. There's a lot of not, not so much in the Baptistic Reformed circles, but especially when you get into the Pentecostal, the charismatic circles, where if you can have a dynamic encounter with God and some quote-unquote new revelation, even if you have a deficient character, you can end up on stage. And there is a couple of really 
uh, scary examples of that. Um, and I'm, I'm not going to say their names. I, I had a couple I was just going to give you. Uh, one from the Pentecostal circle who uh, ended up crazy, crazy questionable character ended up having an affair. Oh, it does say to call out false teachers. I don't think any of you are listening to Todd Bentley as, oh, dang it. I said it. Anyways, uh, <laughs> having, having interaction where he, he committed adultery with a woman in his ministry and then he committed adultery with a man in his ministry. Now, before we dive into the like Pentecostals are the ones who fall into that, uh, the head of the entire evangelical organization about 10 years ago uh, ended up going down famously in flames because he was trying to buy meth off of his homosexual prostitute and got busted for all of the above. Just tragedy now incredibly gifted personalities right charismatic can draw a crowd to themselves but none of those can replace character all right the church is not like the nba talent does not give someone a free pass i i remember as a kid uh i went to westview high school and while at, well, no, no fifth bumps for Westview. Well, the reason I bring that up is uh, while I was there, we, we played in basketball the, uh, the Concord Minutemen from Elkhart. And they had a young guy who was playing for them named Sean Kemp, who was almost seven foot tall, who I remember distinctly the two years that we played them. And, uh, what did and didn't happen in those games. Uh, he went on to play in the NBA as a superstar for, was it Seattle, I think? Sonics, yeah. yeah, Sonics, I think. Um, and I don't mean like, oh, he played in the NBA. I mean, he was one of the top names for a few years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Back in, back in the Jordan days. Uh, I also remember all of the rumors that were flying around where this guy couldn't pass any of his classes and him saying, listen, it doesn't matter if I pass any of these classes, I'm going to the NBA and I'm going to make millions. And so his teacher said, I think you're right. It doesn't matter if you have the character. Now, the thing he didn't say, I'm going to make millions of children, which I think is also the thing that he did just creating a, a small army on his own. <laughs> uh, his character didn't sustain it. Like, how many of you have heard of Sean Kemp? How many of you have never heard of Sean Kemp? Uh, the reason? How many of you have heard of Michael Jordan? I'm not from this area, though, so check your The deal is his character couldn't even sustain his success. Not just his failings, it couldn't sustain his success. Uh, you're your character either will qualify you or disqualify you from ministry. All right. The supreme mark of a man called by God is the quality of his character. Faithfully reflecting the nature of God. That, that's the big reason. Not because uh, God only wants awesome people, but it's reflecting the nature of God and effectively serving the people of God.
All right, so the preeminence of character. Qualifications for an elder, that the word elder, overseer, pastor are all kind of interchangeable uh, in those passages, Titus 1, 1 Timothy 3. Uh, It's not just a listing of things for pastors and elders to aspire to. Like, man, I got to work on this. I I really need to uh, build up this area. These are, we said it in the last one, signs of the summons. That these are evidence of the call upon this person's life. Not future things, but current things that they are walking in. That keeping in mind that these passages, Titus 1, 1 Timothy, were the Apostle Paul, who went around to where there was no church, preached the gospel, established a local church. And then he tells guys like Timothy, go on behind me, and I want you to pick out leaders, men of this church who will uh, lead and steward the church here. And Timothy goes, who do I look for? Like, how on earth? I don't know these people. This isn't my home. I didn't grow up here. And so Paul says, well, here's the character qualities that you're looking for. Somebody who's not quarrelsome, somebody who is gentle, someone who is able to teach, someone who you're already seeing is living it out, whether it's in the workplace or in his home. Just It's a list of things that aren't checklists. It's to help young Timothy be able to place godly men in these roles of responsibility. All right. Okay. Um, All but two of them, uh, being able to teach and not being a new convert, are mandated for every believer in scripture. This isn't stuff that makes a special classification of Christian. It's actually stuff that everybody is required to do. Therefore, these character traits actually fall upon all of us. They're applied to all of us, but especially those in ministry. So the nature of God requires it. Titus 1, verses 5 through 7. This is why I left you in Crete, this is Paul writing Titus, so that you might Put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, can you, can you hear the question? Okay, but who? Like, how do I, how do I pick godly leaders? I, I don't have x-ray vision to see into their hearts or minds. So Paul says, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, his children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward must be above reproach. So just thinking about some of the words in there, the first one, God's steward, Uh, a chief household slave charged with administering the affairs of the master's household. This is not my church. It's not John's church. It's not my dad's church, even though he started it. This is God's church. This is Jesus's church with which he paid for by his own blood and any pastors or elders who serve here uh, do so as if serving for another person's household this is christ's household that we are charged to look after his work has no significance on its own all right so as important as it is i think to have uh, the right pastor in a position uh just that by itself does not have the power to make or break a good church. It doesn't have the power to make Christians. It's the power of God. It's the word of God. That's where we started at the beginning of all this. 
the power, the significance is only as it relates to the interest of his master. So where Christ is at work, where God has a purpose and a design for the church or an individual or a family or a ministry, uh, that's where you're going to see significance and lasting impact, where it's just one person's idea and heart and desire. Man, I, I frequently talk to people about, hey, I I think we should do this. What, what do you think about that? And usually, unless it's I want to travel across the country on a horse, I say things like, go for it. Even to him, I said, go for it, but build these things in ahead of time, knowing if it's the calling, the effectual calling of God, he can't get away from it. She can't get away from it. It will keep coming back and keep coming back. If it's that type of thing, someone is going to jump into a ministry and there, there will be ups and downs and struggles, but it's, it's the type of thing like, I have to do this. Even through hard times and adversity over years, I have to do this. And if it's just one person's good idea and God isn't in it, it's not going to be long at all before that thing fades. Fades, disappears, turns into something else. And that's absolutely just fine. Like there, there's nothing wrong with that. It's kind of like what John talked about. How do we practically discover some of our gifts, talents, and get involved? It's by giving it a go. We're now, unless it's something unbiblical or ungodly, then we would discourage that. But it, if it doesn't fall outside of those parameters, see what happens. All right. Uh, he represents God and his interests. So a leader's life represents God and his nature. He either tells the truth or he tells the lie about who God is. So in our, our character, we're going to reflect, especially to a non-Christian world looking into the church, oh, that's who God is. The, hey, how many of you have heard the phrase before? I thought you were a Christian. What's implied behind that is this is who Christ is. Now, they, they may not have the language for this. That's who Christ is. This is who God is. Therefore, this is who his followers are. And you, my friend, don't fit into that box. Isn't that what they're saying? Right? So we're either telling the truth about God's nature and character, or we're telling a lie. We're, we're saying something that's untrue about who God is. All right. He's God's steward. Uh, because that's true, one of our primary jobs is to study God, to know God. Uh, you'll see this kind of man uh, who is able to lead the church be the one who has poured himself into a deep knowing of God that he might make him known. Uh, so one thing that just comes to mind real quick, and, and I think it bears saying uh, a book recommendation that was actually passed along from one of our elders, Jonas Miller, um, Compelling community. Is that what it's called? I think something like that. Yeah. Uh, it's by Mark Dever and one of the guys at his church. And uh, number one, it's a super good book for uh, thinking about what we do in the church, but they raise a question in it. And this is sort of maybe a, a little caveat to what I said earlier about, Hey, as long as it's not unbiblical or damaging, give it a go. Uh, he's like, what if the ladies from our church decide that they want to put together not this was their church, but what about ours? Uh, an EWC cookbook and uh, have everybody just submit their fam favorite family recipes and uh, put them in there. And we're going to we're going to put out an EWC cookbook. Is that a good idea 
or a bad idea? Is that something we want to involve, uh, invest ministry time and effort into? And now keep in mind, this is a book, not the Bible, right? Uh, but one of the things that they said is they had that and then they actively discouraged it. And then I believe maybe even said that they couldn't or shouldn't be doing that. Now, when I first read that, I'm like, well, that's kind of surprising, especially growing up in this area where like, I remember every few years, our church would have a new cookbook, but not necessarily EWC. Although I think EWC did it one time, probably. But <laughs> there it was. That was a free sample. <laughs> Part of what he pointed out was there are hours and hours and hours of uh, someone's investment in putting these things together. And the question is, is it building community? Is it building fellowship? Is it deepening relationships? Or is it one more thing that's just sort of floating on the surface of this person's life and it would actually distract them from community and fellowship and genuine ministry to people inside the church, evangelism, people outside the church. And they're like, she had a great heart in saying this. And I think it would have been a giant distraction for probably a couple months for her. And so we did everything we could to talk her out of it. I think that was in the book. It may have been in one of their podcasts that I was listening to. Either way, you just got it now for free. You're welcome. Okay. All right. So the preeminence of character, the nature of God requires it, and the nature of the church requires it. One of Paul's chief strategies for making sure the church reflects the glory of God is putting in godly men at the helm. Now, I say godly men at the helm because uh, we believe that it reflecting God's order of creation, reflecting Christ in his church, that he has ordained uh, specific roles within ministry. And yet, I also want to put a little mark next to that, that godly women serving in the church just as much reflect the nature and character of God and just as much serve within the church. Now, we may serve in slightly different areas, and you can sort of see a bristling to that sometimes, like not in this room, but uh, you can see a bristling like, well, who says a woman can't be the, the lead pastor of the church? What kind of sexist thing? It, like, that's terrible. It, and then... God keeps trying to speak to you, Kirsten, through his word. Her, her phone keeps reading the Bible to her. That's awesome. It's external calling. Here's, here's the interesting thought with that. Uh, Paul does make the argument, and we're not, we're not here to jump into this. Paul does make the argument of uh, God's design in orchestrating, whether it is marriage or church, and it has almost nothing to do with the man or the woman and everything to do with reflecting uh, God and his heart, Christ and his church, as opposed to any talents, gifts, abilities that that man or woman may have. But let me pull it out of that sort of fuzzy spiritual realm uh, just to kind of answer that question that I mistakenly raised, but now it's out there. Uh, if... If there is one ministry that the woman can't be the head of or can't serve in that capacity, we say there's inequity. 
Well, fantastic. What happens if we put the man in charge of the breastfeeding mother's ministry? Like you're going to take care of the room. You're going to go check on them, make sure that they have everything that they need. And we have a giant rebellion at our church. They're like, absolutely not. Now, why not? Well, just based on God's creation of male and female, we're like, no, that's a terrible idea. Now, it's not saying that there's anything deficient in how guys would want to care for moms and babies. You look at the vast majority of our nursery ministry throughout the years, and except for when we mostly just stuck teenagers in there, like when I was a teenager, which was awesome. That was bring your girlfriend to church week. Anyway, so, uh, <laughs> so you just get to hang out in the nursery the whole time. That's why we don't do that anymore. Uh, there are certain things that as we live out how God has uh, naturally gifted and built desires into us, uh, we end up reflecting his glory in the midst of it. All right, so why jump into all of that? Because godly character is at the center of it. Now, you want to know where godly character is not in view? When you get out your protest signs and march around saying, you have to let me do this or I'm going to be super, super angry. Uh, that quote that we read at the end of the last lesson, which I'm going to just pull up real quick uh, by A.W. Tozer. Few sights are more depressing than that of a professed Christian defending his supposed rights and bitterly resisting any attempt to violate them. When, when you see absolute anger, hostility, resentment written all over the face or heart or words of somebody who is talking about how beautiful it would be, I almost said another name, uh, if this particular woman could have the main pulpit ministry in the church and then she helps to split the Southern Baptist Convention over that, you, you hear Tozer's words echo like, there's not much more depressing than that. It, we've just made it all about ourselves with no grace towards each other, uh, no grace towards the word of God. Such a Christian has never accepted the way of the cross, the sweet graces of meekness and humility. I promise you, when you see the anger, what's missing on the other side of that? Meekness and humility. He grows every day harder, more acrimonious, as he defends his reputation, his rights, his ministry, against all his imagined foes sounds like something out of like a lord of the rings book or something uh the sad thing is those foes tend to be brothers and sisters in christ and then it it is horrible so the nature of the church requires godly character seth progress like spiritual growth in yes. person's life yes like right afterward what what chapter or book of the bible is that in where it talks about qualifications for elders and then immediately afterward talks about progress can't remember where it is you mean like when he says don't lay hands on a novice no i don't know hey there's about three different spots where it talks about those maybe we'll just check them out and we'll see if we can't find it okay good question Anybody else have questions? Feel free to jump in with questions when you have them. Good. All right. 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. It's a trustworthy saying. 
If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, republican, hospitable, able to teach. Oh, I threw that one in. John almost did the spit take where he, if that could have come out your nose, it would have been worth it. Uh, Verse three, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. If someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So bullet point here, the church is God's church. Not, Not any individual, not any denomination. It belongs to Christ himself. The church is God's household or family. I feel like this is something that we try and uh, land on just about every week that we have been adopted into his family. We use that language a lot, that God has ransomed for himself rebels who were hostile towards him, who were his enemies, but now have been made sons and daughters. Pay attention. We're going to say that just about every week because we want people to be thinking This is not just about some church or social club that I come to. This is the sovereign saving power of Christ to bring men and women to himself. Uh, It is near and dear to his heart that Christ loved the church, uh, that Christ gave himself up for his bride, the church, Ephesians 5 is going to say. We are to care for the church as God himself would care for her. So, If you think about how we interact with the church, most of the time, the vast majority of the time, uh, we interact as if we are consumers or as if we are uh, salesmen. So the two things I mean by that, consumers, what does this church have to offer me? What's the youth ministry look like? What's the children's ministry look like? Uh, What's the preaching style? What's the singing style? What... What, what am I going to gain from the fact that I got up early on a Sunday morning? Uh, what are the people like? Are, are they going to elevate my social status if I join with this group of people? Am I, is it going to push down my social status if I start associating with these people? What, what does it offer me? What is, what's the win-loss ratio for me in choosing this church? Uh, once we go, well, I think I'm going to attend here. Uh, what's the win-loss ratio for me in choosing to be involved in this church? We have a lot of people who show up on a Sunday morning and they, you can spot them. They trickle in a little bit late and they leave out just a little bit as early as they can. Now, that's not the majority because God's done good stuff in you guys' hearts. Like, seriously, good stuff. Uh, just to give you an example of the good stuff God has done in your hearts, you wrecked our plans. We had plans as elders, and you ruined them. Nice job, schmucks. Here was the plan. Uh, you go to a lot of churches, and even if you don't get a chance to like physically go talk to the pastor just because the amount of people in the room... Uh, you have that one-on-one connection either with the pastor at the end of the service where it's after the sermon and there's sort of a switch that happens up front and the pastor greets everybody as they go out the door. They still do that at Maple Grove, right? Uh, So we're like, what if we did this? 
whoever is preaching, there's going to be a swap. Someone else will come and do the closing prayer. And then whoever's preaching and then uh, one or two of the other elders will stand at all the doors and greet everybody, shake everybody's hand, be able to at least put hands on and say good morning to someone. Thanks for coming uh, on their way out. And we're like, let's do it. So we came up with a list by we, I mean me. I did the work and you ruined this. I came up with a list, a rotation of elders and when they would fall on it. And we did it a total of one Sunday and then we quit. And here's why. All right, God bless you. You guys are dismissed. And I'm standing back at that door. And my dad was standing at this door. And I don't remember who was over guarding the women's room door. But uh, there was like two kids came out the door. And all the rest of you just stayed and had fellowship for the next hour. And I'm like, well, we're never doing this again. (laughs) There was... There was a time in the past, we may have done it two Sundays, there was a time in the past where we actually did that pretty regularly. And uh, it worked just great. But because of what God has done in fellowship, in the investment of time spent together, it's kind of changed the character of that a little bit. I, I think that is awesome because this is God's church. These are God's people. I hope, here's what I hope. I hope that that investment of time is because you belong to Jesus Christ. Therefore, I need to get to know you. Man, I want to build a relationship. Tell me what's going on in your life. Tell me what's going on in your family. If it's all, we just all happen to love NASCAR. I don't see anybody wearing NASCAR shirts in here, right? And our main connection is NASCAR. And so we have the NASCAR corner over here. We have the the people who really love golf back in this corner over here. Uh, And just put up whatever hobbies you have in your life, just stick them in. If all those little groups and pods are based on hobbies, we haven't had fellowship yet. That's the whole point of that compelling community book. Two pots of coffee and pizza left. So if anybody's interested, help yourself. Thanks, Daniel. She's the best wife I've ever had. <laughs> that is totally true. Totally true. If on the other hand, it's that, that genuine koinonia, because we have been ransomed together, we have been adopted together in this family, that's a beautiful thing. And I, I believe God is doing good stuff when it comes to that. Uh, that's because it's his church. It's his family. That's why he's invested in this thing. Uh, we are to care for the church as God himself would care for it. Uh, the most shocking example of delegation in the history of the world. <laughs> Unimaginable. Like, you guys are great. And I've noticed when... Other people from the church, especially other people's children from the church, grab my grandson and carry him around. I'm having conversations, but I'm watching the whole time. I don't trust you. <laughs> it shocks me that God would trust us with his family. That, that should stagger our minds. What, what an amazing thing. Uh, it is a major component of our care uh, of Our care is our example. So as we care for each other, our example, our character is what's really underneath all of that. We've all met people in our lives who are really good salesmen who can talk a good game. 
And then it's usually years down the road. Push comes to shove. Uh, God turns up the heat in a certain situation and their true character comes to the top. And you're like, oh my gosh, I did not see that coming. Anybody else had that experience before? Um, by the way, when that happens, those are the moments we should be reminded either A, this is a brother or a sister who's going through a really tough time. We need to lovingly pray for them. Uh, Galatians 6, those of you who are spiritual, restore the one caught in sin in a spirit of gentleness. Uh, or B, this is an unrepentant sinner who's masqueraded as a believer for all these years. We need to be earnestly praying for their salvation. You do either one of those things, and it will keep you from hardness and bitterness towards that person. That's personal experience speaking for you right there. All right. Uh, the fundamental implication of the requirements of eldership is character. A pastor is to be a model of what Christian living should look like. I keep thinking you're raising your hand. Green's got a question. Do you have a question? We'll wait. Okay. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> Seth. In 1 Timothy? Well, let's just read it. Grab your Bibles. I wanted you to talk about it a little bit because I wasn't too sure what it was So 1 Timothy 3. Yeah, 1 Timothy 3 being the... I can't talk and flip in my Bible at the same time. Yeah, the requirements for uh, elder, pastor, overseer. First, he's talking about is 1 Timothy 3.32. Huh? So then... I found that one yet. Well, if you go 16 verses beyond Timothy, 1 Timothy 3, you get to 1 Timothy 4.16. So 1 Timothy 3.32, that's what Pastor Matt was saying. For those, now, for those of you who didn't hear that on the recording... Pastor John just made a math joke. <laughs> and those, those always go over well. <laughs> so it, this is one of the reasons that, and Seth, I'm super glad you brought this up. Uh, rather than thinking checklist for ministry, all right, move on. Next thing he's going to talk about. Like the, the whole totality is written towards how do we build faithful Christians in the church? How do we raise up faithful leaders in a church? It's all connected there. So uh, 1 Timothy 4.11, command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourselves to the public reading of scriptures, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect, neglect the gift that you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Uh, epic passage to bring up because of giftedness. Because of talent, natural ability, it's really easy to go check, 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 I'm in. Rather than Timothy, who's been uh, an apprentice of the Apostle Paul himself, and Paul's going to say, look, you're still young at this thing. 
you have growing, like implied in this is you have growing to do. There's maturation that's going to come in your life. Let everybody see that process. Super interesting that he doesn't say, uh, especially since this is uh, one of the church growth strategies, never let anyone uh, see you in any state of confusion or not having it all sorted out. And when they do see that, you need to have an answer for it and why what we're doing now is even better than before. This is just like real life growth as a number one, someone who knows God, someone who loves and obeys God and someone who shares God with others. So I love that there's an implication. There should be a constant growing. Like Luther said, all of the Christian life is to be one of repentance. Constantly. Okay, good. Any thoughts, comments, questions on that? Rather than me speeding on. Just one at a time, guys. You want to want to capture the audio? That encourages me because I was still, whenever I fall back into sin, like incapable of living up to all the things that we have to pursue in godliness. So when I see passages like that, it makes me makes me feel like I'm able to be sanctified. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And uh, that one is one of those favorite passages that gets applied to youth group because it has the word youth in it. Uh, I mean, Timothy is probably, I mean, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly, but probably at least late twenties, if not early thirties when this is being written to him. Uh, this isn't a child. It's not someone in youth group. But he's saying, listen, dude, you haven't figured this whole thing out yet. You need to walk in humility and modeling repentance and spiritual growth. Super important. And we get the positive here. Thus will save you and your hearers. Now, does our goodness and godliness save us, accomplish our salvation? No. Right? Does our goodness and godliness have the ability to earn merit to save somebody else? No. So he's not talking about a salvation from our sins, but is it possible? So think the flip side. If you fail to do these things, what's going to happen? You're going to train wreck yourself and you're going to train wreck your hearers. That's sobering. Good. I do what I can. ESV Study Bible is probably going to ask me to annotate their next one. I sent in a whole bunch of samples like, guys, you should consider me. It's going to be good. All right. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write the humility section all by myself. Just a picture of me at the side. Captain Humble. It's the Moses thing. The most humble man that ever lived. Quote, Moses. <laughs> All right, the fundamental implication uh, of the requirement for eldership, again, is character. Pastor must be a model. Did I just read this? Of what Christian living should look like. I think I derailed us in the middle of this. Uh, 
First Timothy 4.12, let no one despise you for your youth, uh, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faithful and purity. Uh, Titus 2, 7 and 8, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about you. 1 Peter 5, 1 through 3, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, not because you have to, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being an example to the flock. Richard Cecil quote here, example is more forceful than precept. People Look at me six days a week to see what I mean on the seventh day. Man, that's a pretty high calling. Integrity of the gospel requires our character. First Timothy three fourteen and 15. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So the word uh, ought there, uh, same from verse two that's used earlier, must. Uh, in other words, it is necessary. That This is what a leader of the church and a pastor or an elder uh, must do. The character is essential because the gospel is at stake. If a pastor falls, they don't go, man, you know what? He struggled with that since he was a teenager. I get it. That, that's not what the world does. They say the gospel isn't true. Christianity is a lie. There is no salvation in Christ. It, it actually tears down the church, which we're told in 1 Timothy is to be the pillar and buttress of the truth. It upholds and protects the gospel. It, it's not just the, the carrier of the gospel, the, the container of the gospel, that our charge is to uphold and protect it. And one of the ways we do that is with our lives, with our character. So parameters of character. These traits cover the whole spectrum of a man's life. It, it's not just one moment, one snapshot. It has to be all of our lives. No aspect of your life escapes the scrutiny of these requirements, including marriage, including children, including finances, that everything that we do must be done to the honor and glory of God. Are you going to touch on children as believers? The, uh, like the passage that we read in there on children must be believers? Yes. Uh, We're talking about in the context of requirement for eldership slash deaconships. And yeah, Titus 1. I don't know if we're going to get to that. I'm trying to just skim ahead real quick. Uh, sorry, give me just a second. If not, we'll... We've got a section that's going to gonna lead towards that. Remind me when we get there. We'll make sure that we hit it. Yeah. Man, I have a question. What about the physical aspect of a man's life? Hey, say it again. What about the physical aspect of, on this list at the top? Like, not 
keep going. What, what's the, what are you aiming at? Like, so pastors should not, elders shouldn't. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now that doesn't mean that there aren't going to be areas of struggle, but yeah, no, fire away. Yeah. Small rebuttal. If you follow through all of the list and you you actually look at more of the entirety of scripture, what he says here is required of every single one of us mm-hmm. as yeah. like we are all called to be this. And also along with the fact that we are going to fail. So it's like no man can cause his children to be saved. Like that's that's kind of a Yeah. Yeah. So let me let me give you a little perspective uh, and I'm going to try and I'm going to try and give a perspective carefully on this. Um, The primary actor of our sanctification is the Holy Spirit. Right. Uh, I've had conversations with people that it's been a couple years since I saw good fruit come out of it now there was a process and here's what i believed and it here's where i agree with the premise of the question 100 percent that we don't want to take any area of our life and go well you know i want to honor god in every every area of my life but what am i going to say i'm a drunkard you know it is what it is uh so we we're not we're not going to say things like that but there have been times where i've had conversations with people and then it's almost like, like in one ear and out the other, or they're under such crippling weight of whatever the situation is. They're like, yeah, that sounds fantastic. Only I'm completely hopeless. So thank you. Your words have come as real encouragement to my, you know, it's that sort of sarcastic. Thank you so much. Uh, And the danger is that I, I either think of my words, my accountability as the means of sanctification in their life, where God is using me as a means of grace, but not as grace. Like the Holy Spirit is the one who convicts our heart of sin, who uh, reveals that and leads us closer to Christ. So what, what I've seen happen is I'll have a conversation with somebody and then maybe it's a couple years and then they'll come and be like, you know what? God really spoke to me. He revealed this to me. And all I'm thinking is, yeah, I told you that two years ago. (laughs) <laughs> or even worse is where they get mad because I said something, then they leave the church. They go to some other church and I run into them. I'm like, how are you doing? They're like, man, really good. I was so convicted because of this. Yeah, the pastor over there was talking because he's really good. And, <laughs> and all of a sudden, like that was, that was the means of grace that got their attention. Only 
the thing that I had wrong was the timetable where we're to love each other. We're to be in each other's lives. So the degree to which, and so gluttony is an important one. The degree to which I am involved intimately in someone's life is the degree to which I have an ability to speak into their life. And if I don't have that brother, sister, you better keep your mouth shut. Right. Imagine like switch gender roles that I take it upon myself on a Sunday morning, like sister, so-and-so we are so glad you're here. Now I want to point out the obvious. You are not honoring Jesus by packing on the pounds like that. Everyone notices. Uh-huh. <laughs> now at the same time, and, and here's, here's where I think the danger lies. I don't think anybody's in danger of doing that. Right? No. Cause you all want to live through Sunday. Uh, the danger comes in forgetting that I have struggles in my life that are actually the exact same thing. It just looks different. Mm-hmm. And the timetable is different. Like the gluttony one, because of God's conviction in my life, I've got that one right now. So I've got it down. Then I look at everybody else and I'm like, man, what's wrong with you? Why aren't you getting this? And then we start introducing other things and, I'm not going to give a list because I, I don't I don't want anybody in this room to feel like I'm pointing at them. Uh, but a list of if someone came to you and said, brother, sister, I, I think you're actually failing in this area. And you're like, you don't even know. You don't know my situation. <laughs> There's just all this floundering. And the reason is we forget it's actually the Holy Spirit who's sanctifying our hearts. Now, he's included us in the process. So I would say as much as you build deep relationships, this is an argument for deep relationships with people. That's where we have an ability to go, brother, sister, man, I have a, I have a deep concern for you in this area. And I, I just, you know, I'm curious, help me understand what's going on in your life. Rather than us spouting off all the good advice that we have, help me understand what's going on in your life. Help me understand where you are, what you're thinking, what you're feeling. And when we do that, at the same time, they know, well, I know she cares because I know she's struggling right here and she's reaching out for that same kind of help. It's two different situations. They're both on God's timetable, not mine. Because the other person's like, why, why can't you get this together? Well, I don't know. Everything sucks, you know? So. There is an opposite side to that. Following different... I can't find the word. I'll just say this. A lot of times a person will get their health improved and then all of a sudden everybody's a critic of how they've done it and everybody's all of a sudden a nutritionist but they didn't care while they were being gluttonous what they did with their lives mm-hmm. so they got it uh, so the main thing that the main thing that you're pointing out is we have all been self-appointed experts and we have and this is huge pastor john and i were talking about this actually for the last couple months uh one of the biggest concerns that I have for our church, I think God is doing amazing stuff, is we are sounding more and more like us and them. And factions within the church, uh, us on this side, them on that side, them on this side, us on this side. And we start interacting as if we are the God-appointed experts for people. And this is all over. This isn't one area. This is all over. And rather than deeply getting to know poor old John, (laughs) like I'm just bringing John, you know, my whatever. And I I would say long before we speak, we should listen to them for a good long time. And then at the end we can be like, man, 
That's great. I'm glad you lost all that weight, John. You're, you're doing good. Now, let's maybe talk next time about not using meth. <laughs> but just bringing in our, our own presuppositions is not helpful. Avery. Yeah. Yeah. Where you actually have two or three people in your life, discipleship groups who are surrounding you, who actually have that ability and authorization to speak into your life. Man, what good work is that? Awesome. Any other thoughts, comments, questions? This is. Are these discipleship groups meant to be organic? They're either happening or they're not? Or is there anybody? I think you can start. I mean, anybody can start a disciple group. I mean, I know you've talked about it. I'm sorry. I'm still not a part of one. So, like, is this just left to if it happens or. It has to be organic. It has, to, it has to. I mean, that's one of the reasons why we put the books there and then we put them on discount and then we talked about it and we said, hey, find somebody. Hey, talk to somebody. Hey, choose somebody this week. Because what we can't do is uh, a sign-up sheet. Uh, we can't go, all right, so Autumn, you're with Kathy and Jody, you're with Corrine. And by the way, new best friend, congratulations. Uh, also, uh, every deepest struggle that you have, I'd like you to unveil that now. <laughs> and, uh, like really... As people lean into fellowship, into koinonia with each other, uh, hopefully the natural thing is, man, I want one or two people in my life where it's no holds barred. There, there's no gloves. They're, they're treating me as a full brother. We treat our brothers and sisters way different than we treat each other in the church. I mean, just think about your last phone conversation you had with brother and sister. If you have a good relationship, you will tell them just about anything, Right. If you have a good relationship, if you have a bad relationship, it looks really different because you know, they're going to love you at the end of the day. They may not talk to you for three months, but they're going to like, you can't be unrelated. <laughs> Disown me all you want to. We're still related. I think in terms of uh, an organic discipleship group, I think it just starts one-on-one. -on -one. I think you, you figure out who is it that you're connecting most with in this church and that's the person that you start opening up, um, whether whether it looks more like discipleship or whether it looks more like intimate fellowship. I think that's where it begins. I think that's um, where it more normally yeah. begins. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I think that's the more normal case. And if it goes are, into a group, there are definitely yeah. some cases, at least especially for myself, where that wasn't how it started. Like somehow, for some reason, just a group formed where we were all super super open with each other and invested deeply in, into each other's lives without it like I don't know so I would, I would agree that normally that's how it goes but there are some weird cases <laughs> and I think in terms of I'm one of them there's like, <laughs> um, I don't think I think discipleship group might be a misnomer as well because I think I have I have three or four guys in the church that, you know, I know I can speak into and speak into my life as well, but we don't meet as a group. You know, we, we, sure. you know, we pick up the phone and say, hey, how are you doing today? Um, I think that's, to say it's a discipleship group, I think that's a misnomer. It's a, a, a few guys that care for each other and love on each other. Yeah. So, well, and especially to follow up on that, especially when you are a mature Christian, you don't need somebody babysitting you all the time. Like you don't need one more thing to add to your weekly schedule. What you probably need is to look around and go, 
man, there's some young guys in the church who, if somebody takes time with them and pours into them, I think we're going to see all kinds of fruit in their life. And if not, I think they'll probably drift out of the church. And so guys of a certain age should not be looking side to side or up. We should be looking down, be looking at the younger generation and go after them. And I love that we have some guys in here who are actually super intentional about doing that. And they're, they're again, super good fruit. <gasps> Did you see that? The positive thumb. <laughs> Kirsten just gave Jonas the thumb. It's this guy. Yeah. I think Chuck hit the nail on the head when he said one-on-one because in order to speak in, I mean, for this how I look at it, in, in order to speak in somebody's life, you have to have that relationship and it starts one-on-one. Yeah. And then it can grow from there and bring in other people in. I think that's, Chuck is spot on in that area. Yep. Circle around to your original question, that's where that question of loving comes in because that person who knows you well enough John knows my, my struggles there and you know how and I think a lot of you know that, that struggle there and how that plays into you know the situation I am in my life too and that's where um, you know our pastors they have each other for, for that a lot and the elders you know they have they have the pastors to you know to help them along with that er, those areas and whatever the other areas are too yeah. you know to go along with Gluttony like I'm listening to all this and I'm thinking man, I've always struggled with food because food's always been, and you can call it gluttony, you can call it however you want to call it. Um, it's hard because when you give, I mean, I don't want to say like you give up things in your life, but you feel like God starts pruning things out of your life, you know, and and it seems like the one thing that's always been my go-to when I'm struggling is food, like going to God, but also to food. Like There it is. It's not going to hurt me, or, tr- or like, it could hurt me, but I mean, it's not going to, yeah, it's just not going to, like, bring condemnation on me. I'm going to bring it on myself or other people, sorry, but that's what happens, and it's it's hard, and I think when we look at God, yes, it's a sin. I'm not sugarcoating it or trying to say it's not. It is a sin, but it is, for some people, especially like me, because I'm talking for myself, is it is hard. Hard, especially when you feel like food is something you you have, like to I won't say just for comfort, but that you have. I don't know how to explain it, but well, that no, that was perfect. That was almost exactly what I was going to say to segue us back into remind us we're talking about character mm-hmm. and what we want to do in so many of these areas is devolve into uh, actions where it's kind of like the Amish community around us, we know those who are in, those who are out, those who are doing well, those who are doing poorly by all of the external actions. But the real thing is, the reason why we shouldn't necessarily spout off to people is you can tell them, take this supplement, go on this diet, do, I mean, diet's a a really easy one because it's tangible, you can see it. um, And never get to the heart of, there's idolatry lurking behind this. There's a, a Jesus replacement that looks like rise and roll donuts which i know they're in there (laughs) tempting us Uh, and it so you can you can be healthy all day long 
but emotionally be idolatrous and turning to something else. And it's actually still wickedness inside our heart. So maybe they're not turning to food in gluttony. Uh, they're turning to the escapism of drunkenness. It's the same driving force behind it. It's the same idolatry that's moving it. One we can see, and one because of their controlled nature of it, at least for a while, we can't see. We have to be deeply involved in one another's lives so that we have an opportunity to see past the externals into the heart of what's going on and say, brother and sister, I love you too much to let this keep going. That's an epic question. I'm so glad you brought that up, Kathy. I think that's why God in his qualifications makes all of it, except for being able to teach character, because that way I mean, he could, he'd have to have a really long list if it was about actions. But by making it about character, he covers it all. Yeah. I saw a hand back there. So, Seth. Yeah. So much of our lives outside of this specifically the body. Um, and what, so, do you, what do you mean by outside? He, he should work like other men outside, so it works. Yeah. So, like in his case, I agree with that. Like, have, you say we should or should not? Should. Oh, should. Should yeah, reach out to others. No, I like that the mission thing of John. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like, we uh, were called to make disciples of every nation. Yes. Um, and just as the people in the church need to be encouraged if you know we're to choose to, to encourage a believer or disciple a new believer we always have to choose to bring up the new believer Yeah. sometimes you have to prioritize great relationships or good relationships I'm sure of Jason's love for me um, and that's because we encourage each other in that way. But there's there's people who are hurting and they don't have that, and we are charged to take it to them and show them. And if we're not pursuing character in this way and we're not expecting God to use us, it we don't get the opportunity of being blessed in that way. Yeah. Um, and so you have the opportunity to have a lot of good fellowship um, but if it is only internal uh, Jonah says this to us all the time that a bunch of sheep together stink <laughs> if it's only internal then only so much good can come from it yeah four wall is a Good. Good. Now, one of the the balance to that is most of what we have in the modern church in America is underdeveloped infancy in spiritually full-grown adult Christians uh, who have never been discipled and therefore, when discipling others, have no concept of being grounded in God's word, uh, what it what it looks like to love encourage as well as rebuke and correct a fellow brother and have it all be in love and because that is so horribly missing 
we have to be really careful. Like you have to get step one down before you go disciple the person next to you, because you may very well be discipling them into all of your bad habits, mm -hmm. which is kind of scary. Right. So yeah, but yet I'm 50 years old, so it's kind of really awkward now. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that's that really what it is. It's a balance point between, like, okay, so I'm going to go after somebody, and I'm going to build that connection for myself, and then man, I got to be reaching, I got to be reaching out to this younger person because they don't have, I, we start recognizing the same thing. They don't have the same things that I didn't have. I'm going after them. I'm going to build into them. Britt. Why is it, maybe this is off subject, why is it so hard for, I mean, I'm speaking from personal experience, why is it so hard to disciple my own kids rather than young men involved in my life outside Cause, of my family? Because your own kids see all the good and the bad with you. Whereas discipling if, if we're having other people disciple our children our children are more shielded from the negative side of that person and it's more positive influence. maybe i'm speaking incorrectly no i think that's opinion. that's in there i often say it's easier to lead a church than a family because uh, I, I can wear a mask and come to the church but i can't come yeah to yep um, <laughs> <laughs> i was speaking about uh so, moving on. <laughs> well, and that's that's it right there. In the church, it, it's all the stuff we're talking about. Like character is huge. It's at the top of the the qualification ladder. And then we go home and we go, my character doesn't matter. I can do whatever I want. I can say whatever I want. This is my house. No one can say anything to me. And then we just blow all of our bad character all over our kids going, well, you know. I'm your mom. I'm your dad. You should be able to sort it out. Yeah, they sorted it out. And they go, I'd like none of that, please. <laughs> Miriam. Good. And keep in mind, she had parents that were almost perfect. <laughs> and humble. That's, that's the opposite of discipling. <laughs> that's deception. I think that's, I think that's a curse of being a PK. Yeah. Yeah. 
I think that, like, I don't blame anyone. Like, I still got a disciple. Like, I have my dad. So he did, I would say, a decent job, but I can't because that's not humble. We also that. But, like, it is, it's a, it's a hard thing out there to, like, I have no idea how to do it. And I've been dragging my feet to get doing it with some of those youth kids, and that's kind of my excuse. Is like, well, I'm already kind of doing it, but I'm not. So. No. At some point, what has to happen is we have to decide it's a priority in the church. Uh, we've talked about it for a while, uh, for several years. Like, man, adults, find one of, one of the kids in the youth group. Look for somebody you have an attachment with. And just start once a month getting together with them, talking with them. And uh, can't get it to happen. And it, Yeah, yeah, it, yeah, our own kids who aren't coming to youth group, absolutely. But until we as a church decide that it's good for us to invest in people and relationships and discipleship relationships, we're going to stay right about where we are. And I will add this too, Matt. Uh, here lately I've been talking to a young man that I've known since he was a little kid. We spent a lot of time on the phone together during the day. And one thing I do know is for me, I want to know that that man or that young man is a candidate to even hear what I have to say in order for me to pour my life into because I'm not going to throw my pearls before swines because either they're not ready or they don't want to hear it from me. And it goes back to what Chuck was saying, the one-on-one -on -one thing. Mm -hmm. You have to have that relationship with them, number one. But you, I think, in your character, your judgment of character will know whether that young man or, or ladies, young woman, is even... Uh, going to receive that blessing. I call it a blessing because when you pour into your life, they're basically carrying the baton. Carrying right. It on for you, so. Right. I think we kind of have to redefine discipleship as well. So many of us, especially if you're brought up in a church, have this idea that discipleship is a structured thing where we have to have a lesson to teach, that we have to sit down with them one-on-one -on -one and tell them exactly how it is and there's a right and a wrong way to do it. And I don't think as a church we've done a good job of defining that that's not what it is. It's living life with one another yeah. and going back to, hey, I don't have all the answers, but God does, so let's go to him together. That's right literally on. all it is. The, the job of discipleship doesn't end. Correct. It's right. continuous yeah. all the time. And the need to be discipled is continuous. Yeah. Exactly. Yep. And it may take years and years and years before you see any fruit. And I didn't do any fruit. I know you doing one to bring out fruit. Right. <laughs> good good all right so uh how about this this is where we left off these traits require time to be proven and a context in which to identify them so uh whether you are talking about the individual or whether you are talking about the leader time will tell that's that's the end of that
that no matter how good somebody looks or sounds in the short term, time will tell where they really are uh, or how bad they sound in the short term. I guess we shouldn't just lump it in one direction. Uh, a demonstrated pattern of God's grace at work over a period of time is actually what we're looking for in someone's life. This is one of my favorite things to do in talking with people from the church who give me the I am terrible and my life is terrible and everything is terrible speech is to then back uh, the ones I've known for a while, back them up. Okay, how were things 10 years ago? What did it sound like when we had this conversation 10 years ago? What did your reactions look like 10 years ago when these type of situations came up? Because often the immediate thing is, I'm in the exact same place that I used to be. Man, not even close. Not even close. Like we wouldn't have even been having this conversation 10 years ago. But now God has done such a work in your heart. It doesn't mean there aren't still bad days. But you have seen a demonstrated pattern of God's work over a long period of time in this person's life. And it is not what it used to be. It's not what they hope to be. But by the grace of God, they are what they are. I just made that up right now. That's. You say you have a bad oh wait, <laughs> there's some things I can remember. All right, uh, that's that's actually why when it comes to ministry, it can't be a new convert. You can't have an established pattern of God's grace over a long period of time in their lives, and whatever successes that they're having right now, if you quote unquote, lay hands on them, that the elders laying their hands on, setting them apart to this ministry too quickly, uh, we're just told it's going to lead to conceit in them. That they're going to be pride and they're going to be puffed up and then they're going to be no good to anybody. So having said all of that about character, the local church is vital to recognizing that character, developing that character, uh, giving that character within the individual a ability to bloom there. Uh, you can't discern this in a conversation with somebody. So one of the things that I've heard so many police officers lament, especially in the last couple years, is you'll have somebody who's got deep emotional struggles that they're going through. And maybe it's led to some sort of domestic situation, uh, maybe a threat of self-harm. And so law enforcement who aren't trained counselors get called. And what they have to do, the protocol is we're going to pick them up. We're going to take them uh, to the hospital to be evaluated, usually by an ER doc or by somebody who's going to do a referral at, um, you know, some mental health system. And the thing I have heard lamented so much is, it was bad to start with. Like they hated this to start with. And then COVID came. And now it's not just, <clears throat> it used to be on the worst days, on the good days, someone sat down and talked with them. That's somebody being a perfect stranger who then has to try and figure out in about a five minute conversation, is this person a danger to themselves or somebody else? And then they got busy and they would roll a little video monitor screen in and now a perfect stranger comes up on the screen and now you're just talking to a box. That's awful to try and figure out in one conversation, is this person a danger to themselves and others? The last time I was in the ER, they didn't even have the video monitor. They had a phone and they handed the person a phone 
and they talked on the phone and they're like, yeah, I think he's fine. Let him go. Heartbreaking. This is why, man, it feels like this entire session is about we need fellowship with each other. Uh, this is why this can't be discerned in one conversation. Uh, and the flip side of that is you can't prove it uh, in a seminary class. So you do all the work. You go through school and ministry. You turn in every handwork, uh, handwork, uh, homework assignment. Uh, you do all of the reading. That doesn't prove where you are in your spiritual maturity and walk with God. That may prove you're good at homework. That's, you know, that's what that means. So uh, qualifications and success in the past doesn't necessarily mean that you have the character to sustain it. Right. That's why at the end of school of ministry, uh, we don't have licensing to ministry or ordination to ministry. Those are still uh, going to grow organically out of service within the local church. All right. So what is the profile of character? John, you want to do this? Absolutely. Why don't you do the next couple pages and I'll finish this up. All right. And as we uh, talk through all this, keep, keep in mind that the lists aren't exhaustive. In other words, there's more to it. Uh, the list doesn't end here, um, but they are authoritative. You must have these qualities. Uh, if you don't have them, you are disqualified, uh, at least from eldership. Uh, so again, what we're about to read, it's not exhaustive, but it is authoritative. And so 1 Timothy 3, 2 through 7 says this, Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So, must be above reproach. Uh, this is the requirement. Um, all of the rest go on to kind of uh, unpack this phrase, must be above reproach. Uh, nothing in his character will call him into question is what this is saying, uh, that he's free from any legitimate accusation. Uh, we all know that everybody is susceptible to accusation, uh, but it's saying he needs to be free, free from any legitimate accusation. Uh, and that his reputation, this is an external thing, not an internal thing. You know, you, you can't qualify yourself on this one. I am awesome and everybody loves me. Just, just take my word for it. You know, it, it doesn't work that way. This is an external thing. Um, to be above reproach is basically, can other people outside of myself bring a legitimate charge against me? This isn't something under your control as far as other people uh, bringing things against you. You can't qualify yourself on this one. 
So verse 7, uh, well thought of by outsiders. Uh, you can kind of say this, this whole requirement is bracketed by this. What others think of you matters. This is about what other people think about you, and it matters. Uh, one of the big things within Christianity is we, we uh, encourage the idea, don't worry about what other people think about you. That's in the context of doing what is right. Um, standing alone, if that's what it takes. We don't mean, oh, if people think you're an absolute jerk, don't worry about it, unless you're acting like a jerk. You know, when we say, don't worry about what other people think, we mean, if you are living a godly life in a Christ-like manner, and it upsets other people, don't worry about what they think. But that does not mean that if you are not living in a Christ-like manner, and people don't like you, that's on you. And you need to consider the negative impact you may be having on Christ, your testimony, and his church. So there is an element where what other people think about you actually does matter, and it's something we have to take into consideration. Are you well thought of by outsiders? So it's not just about you uh, and how people think about you right now. What effect uh, is you being an elder going to have on the reputation of Christ, going to have on the reputation of the church? So again, there are times where it does matter. It is about Christ's name, not just simply your reputation. So as leaders, we have the greatest opportunity to bring disgrace on the name of Christ. So leaders also have the greatest responsibility within the body of Christ. Um, we have the greatest opportunity to bring that disgrace, and so we have the greatest responsibility. So uh, husband of one wife. Literally, the phrase Paul uses is a one-woman man. Uh, in other words, marital faithfulness, both in body and mind. He's a one-woman man. And so marriage is to be a model of Christ and the church. Uh, so well thought of by, outside, by outsiders, husband of one wife, literally a one-woman man, that he only has eyes for his wife. Uh, it's in that that marriage is to be a again a model of Christ and the church. I figured that question would come up, um, and I'll share from uh, my studies and Pastor Matt as as well. Uh, he uses that phrase a one woman man, and that's the only time that phrase is ever used. And so a lot of people link it with husband of one wife. Oh, he can never have been divorced. When I look at the language that he uses, there was a Greek word for divorce that Paul uses in different passages. Uh, so it's interesting that here in this passage, he doesn't use that word. He uses a phrase that is not used anyone anywhere else, a one-woman man. And so he could have used the word divorce because they had a word for divorce. And when you look at this list of qualifications... All of them, except one, have to do with a man's character. Uh, and the one that doesn't is when it says he must be able to teach. Uh, and divorce, while it may speak to a man's character, it doesn't necessarily speak to his character. Um, because I know divorced men who are divorced through no fault of their own. Well, let me rephrase that. They did not pursue divorce. <laughs> uh, so, or 
they were divorced before they were saved. Uh, and so that would, again, not be necessarily a character-driven qualification, um, but again, a what kind of actions have there been in the past? Uh, so with, with just those couple of things that he could have used the word divorce since that word did exist, but he chose to use this phrase, um, a one-woman man, and also the fact that throughout this list, it's all about a man's character. Uh, it, it leads me to the conclusion that it is about, is he faithful in body and mind? Is he a one-woman man? I only have eyes and heart for the woman I am married to. That's character. Uh, Good. Yeah. Okay. I, and it, I think one of the safeguards in thinking about that is if we're not careful how we read it, we apply the same... Uh, biblical teaching by silence, we could say, well, if he's not married to one woman, he can't be pastor, mm. he can't be an elder. Because it says it has to be the husband of one wife. Yeah. Well, shoot, I better find a wife. Uh, <laughs> Paul himself was unmarried when he was writing this. So it, it is helpful that there are some things linguistically and historically that go, well, it can't mean this. And mm -hmm. then we acknowledge there's some ambiguity. It doesn't actually tell us Okay, how, how does that work? How does that not work? Mm -hmm. And so we just have to do the best we can to be faithful and obedient to Scripture. Yeah. yeah uh, some people will interpret as saying, you know, you can't be polygamous. Um, but actually polygamy wasn't as common and rampant back then as we often think. But that could be another way to read this. I mean, there's, so we do the best we can. And how do you justify that with Old Testament like King David who had probably hundreds of wives? Like, mm -hmm. how Well, with David and Solomon and those, those are what are called descriptive passages. Uh, they're narratives. Um, nowhere in there does God say that is what David should have done, and therefore that's what we should do. Those are just simply, just, there's a descriptive and a prescriptive. When we look at those things, those narratives, it is simply saying this is what these men did. But that doesn't, that's not God saying that is what we must do or this was smart. <laughs> uh, so and it's interesting in many of those passages, then we're given the stories of this didn't work out that well. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this, this was a bad idea. Yes, came out in that community group, and it's like if you look, uh, you, were, you were saying how if you look at anybody in the Bible who was like a heavy hitter, whatever, Moses, <laughs> David, anybody, they all just crash and burn right at the end. Mm. Yeah, they all did something. Yeah, it didn't, it didn't really work out that great for Yeah, which is amazing when God identifies himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I identify myself by these guys who blew it. But but that's a, a good question, Kathy. That's actually something I'd struggled with for a long time is, what about these guys? Um, but yeah, it's it's a descriptive passage just saying this is what they did. Uh, and no commentary one way or the other is, as far as that goes. Yeah. It wasn't like we struck them down for it. Right. Yep. So good. Just good questions. Just saying one woman at a time. Yeah. One <laughs> 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 woman. For the sake of a recording, what Chuck said, I will not repeat. So, <laughs> <laughs> You're saying there's a chance. Uh, so... Mostly good questions and comments all around. <laughs> it's because so. I said too much good stuff about you earlier. That's what I was
so he must be all these things. And he, he goes on. He says, uh, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable. Uh, and so that external life is keeping with his internal confession of, I seek to be a godly man walking with godly character. Um, his life is, is orderly. He's not impulsive, uh, not childish. He, he's not reckless in these things. Uh, so again, that his externally, it's keeping in line with his internal confession. That's uh, in James, that's what uh, James 2 is about, um, about show me your faith. This is that, the external life showing the faith that I confess to have. Uh, hospitable. Ministry is about people. Uh, you can't have hospitality without people. Ministry is about people. Uh, do you enjoy people? Do you enjoy ministering to them even when you're off the clock? Uh, are you hospitable? Able to teach. Again, this is the one that uh, is unique from the others and that it, it's not necessarily about or character, but an ability uh, able to teach. Uh, unique to elder, pastor, overseer. And that doesn't necessarily mean to preach. Um, there is a difference between preaching and teaching, although they are very closely related. And this ability to teach is a God-given ability. Uh, just because somebody is able to teach does not mean they should be in a position of leadership because there's all these other things to go along with it. But again, as, as Charles Spurgeon said, I'll, I'll change a little bit. If you're not able to teach, God did not call you to teach. Uh, so able to teach, not a drunkard. Uh, and this is not just alcohol, but any worldly thing that would enslave, whether it's food, as Kathy was talking about, or whether it's uh, Lord of the Rings, which was big for me, uh, whether it's the cell phone. Um, uh, there's all kinds of things. Paul said, all things are lawful, but I will not be bound or controlled by anything. He's saying, you know, that thing in and of itself isn't bad. Food in and of itself isn't bad. Cell phones in and of themselves, well, I guess they're not bad in and of themselves. Uh, but when we become controlled by these things, it doesn't mean those things are bad now. It means we have misused and have not demonstrated godly self-control. Uh, so not a drunkard means he's not demonstrating the fact, he, he is demonstrating that he is enslaved, he is bound or controlled by something. Uh, then not violent. He doesn't love a fight. He's not quick-tempered. <laughs> uh, he is gentle. In other words, uh, he is gentle. He's, he's not one who demands his rights, demands that it must be his way. In 1 Peter 2.23, he says, it says, when he was reviled, speaking of Christ, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Uh, and that is what we are to emulate. Uh, and then this from George Bethune said, Perhaps no great grace is less prayed for or less cultivated than gentleness. Indeed, it is considered rather as belonging to natural disposition or external manners than as a Christian virtue. 
and seldom do we reflect do we reflect that not to be gentle is sin. You know, I've never heard anybody confront somebody else on, you know, I think you're in sin, you're not gentle. I've I don't think I've ever heard anybody be confronted for not being gentle. Um, and yet, as Aiden pointed out earlier, all of these character qualities are what should be uh, common among all Christians. It's simply, Paul is simply saying the qualifications for being an elder is that you demonstrate that you're a genuine Christian, somebody who is actively, consistently walking after God. And so this gentle is not one that we often point to, yet that lack of gentleness uh, is a sin. So not quarrelsome. Uh, 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25 says this, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. In other words, they're not to be a pretentious person. Uh, I know it all. You know nothing. I will graciously allow you to sit at my feet and listen to me, but don't pipe up because I will have to slap you down. Uh, not quarrelsome. Not looking to prove a point. Uh, so not quarrelsome, kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, not being pretentious, then not a lover of money. Can I throw one thing in there? Oh, yeah. Uh, I think because we live in an Amish Mennonite area, it's important to qualify not quarrelsome doesn't mean that we never have disagreements about mm, things. We right. never say hard words to somebody else that there there actually is because you can't you can't divorce this from uh, the commands to the elders to rebuke those who need rebuking correct those who need correcting so there's going to be moments where you you point at it at whatever the thing is the question is and I love the qualifications where he's like okay not this not quarrelsome but this kind to everyone if you're doing it in a teaching way, you're doing it in a patient way, uh, you're not being evil at it, and correcting his opponents with gentleness. And so mm -hmm. this doesn't mean that we never get into discussions where we even sharply disagree, but it does mean that we're not looking for a fight. And it, so here's as a pastor who has a lot of counseling meetings with people over the years, what I look for is dead eyes in people where you're talking with somebody and you're you're like man brother sister consider this and they're looking at you as if they're looking through you just a thousand yards beyond you because they're not listening to a single word you're saying they're working on their rebuttal they're, they're going to work on how how they come back from it and generally for me those are really short meetings I'm like okay thanks for coming See you <laughs> yes <later."> yep <laughs> Yeah, same time next week. Uh, you're not hearing a single thing I'm saying, but I'm not, and hopefully, I'm guarding my heart enough where I'm not just looking for a quarrel in this moment. Mm -hmm. And some people, man, God has made them with a, a certain spunkiness in their temper. It, no, I said the wrong word. I can't get it. In temperament. temperament. Where... They are just ready, ready to rumble. And I mean, if that's you, 
Okay, Martin Luther has an entire website just dedicated to his insults that he yeah. uh, would hurl at his opponents. Yes. And it takes a certain kind of person to spark and keep a reformation going. But I think as leaders, we need to cultivate that gentleness. It's his own. We are engaging, we're saying it's our things, name. but we're also listening. So. Mm-hmm. Anyways, that, I, I wanted to be clear. This isn't we don't say hard things. Yeah. Where there's correction and somebody's like, I thought you said gentleness. I thought you said not quarrelsome. You just made me feel bad about well, it. Yeah. And that's what I was, I was thinking earlier, the balance of, I don't know if you've read the New Testament or Acts. I've heard of them. Definitely doesn't mean you compromise on the truth. Because yes. the truth can be offensive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The truth is. But, I mean, yeah. Truth, yeah. if you think about the gospel, can if be. you yeah. go to someone who is an atheist, it's loves living in their sin, mm-hmm. you coming into their world and being like, hey, guess what? What you're doing, God hates it. And the justice for it is that you get to go to hell. That's not a very nice, like, that's a part of it. You don't necessarily see it like that. <laughs> But, like, that is a true part of the gospel. Like, God hates sin. He is apart from it. He will destroy it in you. Or, he will send his son as a substitute. And you will be saved from your sin. And, like, it's a free gift to that. Like, there's the balance of it. But, like, there is a, like, the person you're saved from when God saves you is God. It's not mm-hmm. saving. Yeah, you're saved from like, the wrath of God. That's something I don't think people like actually think about enough. Is like, sure, Satan is not a great character in the Bible, but like, you just get to go live with him in hell and eternal punishment. Yeah, he's there he's being yeah. punished. He's not the punisher. That's God. That's I don't think people like. There is an abrasive part to sharing this that like it's a scary thing to share with someone. Yeah, so we that's, just that's a good way to kind of connect these thoughts is. There is a confrontational nature to ministry mm-hmm. that is inherent and necessary, but not quarrelsome. Yeah. Right. And it's still gentle. But yeah. God's sake. Yes. Yeah. yeah let you. Y- there's a phrase in there that says patiently enduring evil. Mm-hmm. How does that play out? Like, I can picture Jesus because what his end days he went through, but mm-hmm. everyday man, how is patiently enduring evil? I would love to give you some examples. I think it's interesting. Yeah, I think it's interesting that he says that right before correcting his opponents with gentleness. Uh, Those two go together really well. That regardless of who you're speaking to and how they may be reacting to what you are saying. You do not respond in kind. Um, that you, and that's why this last uh, phrase here is so important: correcting his opponents with gentleness. Um, it's not don't correct your opponents; 
it's correct them with gentleness because the truth will be offensive, but let the truth be offensive, not your manner. Um, it will be offensive. The truth will be. But let that be what offends people and not how you're presenting uh, the gospel, how you're presenting uh, what you're saying. So patiently enduring evil means when people are speaking against you, you don't rise up against them in kind. But then you gently correct them. Because so, people will rise up against you. <laughs> yes. No. Nope. So. Yeah. Yes. Partially. Dramatically. Dramatically. Well, I will cover one more and then pass over to Matt so he can end this all. No, end this. So he can... Was either homicidal or suicidal, and I'm going to decide. So he can... Close us out. <laughs> Thank so you. Yes, while he's speaking, I'm going to go grab something off my wall in my office, and we will end this all. So <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't even do the last one here. Just pass it over now. Um, the last one here that I'll talk about is not a lover of money. Uh, how many guys remember the, the group, the, like the Beatle wannabes, the monkeys? Uh, I used to love watching the show, and in their kitchen, they had a sign that said, money is the root of all evil. Nope. That's, notice what he says here, not a lover of money. The, the verse says, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So not to be a lover of money. Uh, in other words, your own temporal interests, money, security, happiness, wrapped up in your possessions. Um, so... These temporal interests should not come before eternal interests. It's not wrong to say, I want some money so that I can pay for a house for my family. I want some money so I can put food on the table. Uh, that's not what it means when it says not a lover of money. It's saying that the, the eternal interests come before the temporal interests. And I will trust God that he will take care of my temporal interests as I faithfully carry out what he has given me with eternal interests. So not a lover of money, not looking for gain, um, whether through ministry or other means, not looking for that temporal gain, but looking for, looking out for the eternal interests. So I'll let you Good. close us out. All right. So this is the one we kind of alluded to earlier which is probably why John just bailed on us in the middle of it. <laughs> he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So one of the questions a little bit earlier was on the passage. Somebody remind me, where is it at? Where it The, the one that says his children must be believers. Yeah. Uh, so let's, let's take some time. I, I want to read these to you, but I want you, to, I want you to file that in your brain. All right, so have that, that verse in your brain. And as we, as we have gone through this, we've been talking about these are the character qualities that we're looking for in a man. Now, these, every single one of these passages was written to either Timothy or Titus 
What was their job? Somebody help me out. Raise up local leaders in the church. Uh, was it churches they were familiar with? No. Not necessarily. So in, in at least one case, I think Timothy lives in Ephesus for at least two years. So th there's a, a growing knowing that's happening there. But it's not like this is the church I've grown up in. I've always known what Carrie's character is like, right? I've always known what Roger's character is like. These are, these are churches in which they are effectively outsiders now they're relatively new churches but they're outsiders coming in to uh, help raise up and set in leadership uh, god-ordained authority all right so let let me run through these but keep that in mind that idea their children must be believers uh, the home is the fundamental proving ground for ministry so these young guys coming into a church uh, where am i going to look for for the the biggest fruitful evidence of what their life actually believes and what they're passing on, what their ability to pass on, what their true consistency. I'm going to look at the family. I don't care what you say on a Sunday. If your family doesn't actually reflect it, there's incongruity. At some place, there's a breakdown between what you say you profess and what you actually live out. Right? Does that make sense? All right. So in the family of God, a man's ability to lead his family is the foremost test that either qualifies or disqualifies him from ministry. So John Stott, the married pastor, is called to leadership in two families, his and God's. And the former is to be the training ground for the latter. So the time we spend in our own family is to be the training ground for leading, equipping, uh, raising up disciples and leaders in God's family. So we're told that he must manage. Uh, that is not, not the administrative, like a drill sergeant. Uh, and I'm just, I'm thinking about uh, maybe Josiah's days in the Marine Corps where like at the end of the day, drill sergeant is not the guy you go hang out with for a while. Like there's, there's a certain level of separation that's built into it. Uh, there's a certain level where if you don't say, if you don't do what I say, when I say, your life just got terrible right now, right? That, that kind of thing. There are pastors who treat their churches like that, where if you don't say what, if do what I say, when I say, giant angry explosion. Uh, I could... It, yeah, and really, a, a cult just being a closed group of people, uh, that's what you have. You, you have a group of people who have surrounded uh, a minister in his giftings, in his personality, and it's not necessarily a gathering around Christ and his word, but around this person's personality. Uh, so the two primary functions are leadership and care for those whom God has entrusted to him. If a man does not provide wise, diligent guidance at home, right? It, so that this is the main proving ground, bringing biblical care to his family, he will also not be an effective pastor. If he's going to take the shortcut in one, he'll take the shortcut in the other. If he's missing opportunities to uh, incorporate the gospel into his children's lives, he will miss those opportunities for the gospel in people's lives. And in fact, what you can see is uh, he's the same person just dictating at home as he is in the church. I don't personally live this out, but you need to do this. You need to do this. You need to do that. And you look at those pastor's kids, uh, 
And they're the ones that we call PKs, right? They're the ones with the reputation of my dad is the pastor and I'm going to be the wildest kid in town that good luck keeping up with me, right? Because there's an, an inconsistency that's in there. So John MacArthur says, if you want to know whether a man lives an exemplary life, whether he is consistent, whether he can teach and model the truth, whether he can lead people to salvation, to holiness, to serve God, then look at the most intimate relationships <coughs> in his life and see if he can do it there. Look at his family and you'll find people who know him the best, who scrutinize him most closely. Ask them what kind of man he is. So you will produce in your ministry what you are producing at home. Now, there's a plus and a minus to that, all right? Uh, when you look at your own home, no one is more keenly aware of your home's weaknesses and shortcomings than you. No one tends to unjustly blame themselves for their children's shortfalls than you. They are still uh, independently responsible for God for their thoughts, word, and actions, right? Now, you bear responsibility in raising them, in pointing them towards the gospel, in modeling godly behavior, in correcting ungodly behavior in them. And yet, you are going to know the bad more than the good, which can lead to a lopsided, like, oh, it's terrible. I should quit right now. Like, this is just awful. <coughs> On the other side, uh, nobody tends to be more uh, blind to some of the other things that are going on that other people see in your family than you. And here's how you can prove it. Wait until they bring up those shortcomings. Wait until they bring up uh, something about your wife or your husband or your children or your family or something like that. And just watch how you respond. I, I know we've had a couple times where, uh, I don't know why it's moms. I, maybe dads are a little bit less involved or something like that. Uh, but we have a couple moms who are like, uh, mama bears in the hallway just sort of going at each other like how dare you talk about my child right you can hear like the claws come out like makes a clicking sound i don't know if you've heard it but it's like yeah. click 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 uh and rather than going man that's a that's an interesting point you bring up about my offspring <laughs> we don't we don't start there right we start with clicking uh now and this isn't this isn't to uh, claim sainthood for Danielle and I, but really early on, we adopted the total depravity model for our children. Our children are depraved sinners, and if you give them the opportunity, they will in fact sin. And uh, I don't know how many meetings we had with like teachers or other parents where we're like, 
No, we're starting with the assumption that our children have sinned. Like they're, even if they didn't sin in their, their actions that you saw, I guaranteed they sin in their words. And if not, at least in their heart, they are sinners in this situation. I remember one in particular, we met with parents of a kid. Oh man, it was one of McKay's friends and they were super little. We actually met with them with the principal of the school because it had escalated on the playground at Shipshe Elementary. And I'm like, now we, we are both Christian families, like saved by grace, by the power of the gospel, believing that we are uh, sinners, having nothing good in ourselves, and our only hope is the gospel. And then you could just sort of still uh, Britt Heiser's quote, like, what the problem is? <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, like, if, if sin is at the root of it, let's say, yeah, you sinned, and you sinned, and... and Clearly, if mom got out of control, then she sinned. But the remedy is confession and repentance and all that stuff. And I remember the, the teacher and the principal were walking out. They're like, I've never had a parent say that about their kid and their interaction. I'm like, you called your kid a sinner. I'm like, I hope so. <laughs> but we don't, we don't normally start right there. All right, so uh, thinking about evaluating someone's character, someone's family, someone's qualification for ministry. Uh, this is not, in fact, in my notes, this has a little star next to it. This is not meant to be a club to beat a man or a family over the head with. And that can happen. As soon as something difficult comes into a, a situation, there is, um, most of you, if you've been around a while, have met Vic Hildebrand. He hasn't been here for a while. Uh, they moved out of the area. But he started a couple churches that are like good-sized churches in this area. Uh, one of them, as you're going into Goshen, used to be called, what was that one Zion. called? Zion. Zion Chapel. Uh, Grace up in Sturgis. So the one going into Goshen was sort of the flagship, flagship one that he had started. And late in their marriage, late in their parenting, their kids were grown and out of the house. Uh, his wife was diagnosed with bipolar disorder and came off the rails like huge emotional difficulty uh, and they didn't know what was up right away and in fact disappeared for a certain amount of time where she was just gone and nobody knew where she was and they went to him as the overseer of this church and said the bible says that you have to keep your family under control you have to manage them your wife is out of control you're out we're cutting you off now, in God's grace, time went on and that has been healed, but that was a deep wounding. What should have been said is, brother, uh, you are going through maybe the most difficult time in your family's history, and there are a lot bigger issues going on than just how it looks on the outside. For this period of time, it would be great if you stepped out of these responsibilities so that we can love you well and walk through this with you. As it was, this turned into a club to hit him with. And I guarantee when pastors have a, a kid who's walking through a time of rebellion, nobody feels that more intimately than him. All right, so uh, here's some of the fruit of managing a household well. Faithfulness to one's wife in thought and action. Supportive, joyful, submissive wife. <laughs> Your wife cannot qualify you, but she can disqualify you. 
We're going to beat the joy into you. Asking for a friend. Before I comment, go ahead, Kathy. Or are you just volunteering to be a friend? And, but Aiden, go ahead. I think, I think a helpful thing to do here would be to define joy versus happiness. Yeah. I think one of them is learned and doesn't technically mean you're feeling great, but it's sort of a contentness of where you're at. Like joy comes from the Lord to us, not out of us. It's definitely alien from us. Good. But it's, I think it's important to like draw a distinction on that type of thing. Because like, yeah, some things kind of just suck and that's it. Like they don't, they don't really produce any happiness in people. Like taxes, not great. <laughs> but I had to do my taxes. <laughs> yeah, if you, if you commit tax fraud, joy for a bit. Yeah, good. So one of the things John just said, it's one of the fruit of the spirit because it's not something that we drum up. It's a grace of God that he places in our hearts. Now, I love what Kathy said. This could be childhood trauma. Uh, this could be, what were the other things that you said? It could be marital problems. It could could be a season in your life. So Here's what I love about that. It's not a one stamp fits all answer. So if it's childhood trauma, deal with it. Go after it. Now, it's going to be a long process. Deal with it. If it's marital problems, deal with it, right? Those are, those are pretty simple ones. If it's a season of life that you're in, like I guarantee if you go to uh, Matt and Angel in the next year and just take a, a joy dipstick and put it into their lives, um, you're going to misread happiness and joy in there, and they are going to look somber and miserable. <coughs> and yet the joy of the Lord is their strength. And that what that looks like right now is a lot of, I keep walking on dark days when I don't feel like walking. That's their strength. And it, so even for you, Kirsten, uh, on those dark days when you don't feel like walking and you don't feel like keeping going, the fact that you keep going isn't evidence that you feel real happy and have a big plastic Jesus smile. Uh, it's that the joy of the Lord is your strength. <coughs> That's the evidence we're looking for, not the dipstick of happiness. Uh, now, when there's solid depression for two years, yeah, go after it. Let's figure it out. Yeah, I don't follow but, 
And the strength in that is not in changing how you feel. It's in continuing in faithfulness. And it, when we do that, our feelings follow our actions and our faithfulness. That's why it's good to have a husband like him. Yep. Who doesn't say, oh, you can stay home. He's like, uh, no, you're going. Yep. Because <laughs> it's coming. That Those feelings come, but they may be a long ways out. It's like Matt and Angel. The, those feelings of being feeling normal, not feeling that ache, they're coming, but they're a long ways out. And so for us to assume that biblical uh, faithfulness and joy and faith is for them to feel a certain way right now, foolish, foolish. Which is good, but I also want to caveat that. Please don't bring your kids to this. Yeah, like it, it which is fine, but uh, like we are aiming at you, and I actually would like you to set this time aside for you to fix your eyes on this. And, and holy cow, Heiser kids, you have been amazing. Like seriously, fantastic. Uh, That's where the club comes in. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Who, somebody was somebody going to say something. Miriam, you were. Well, I thought this class was more towards like being an adult and finding how you're going to minister and growing and not like a college class. Yeah. And kids aren't meant for college class material. I mean, that's just about teens, though. That's why I'm more towards my, my 19, 17, 14 should be able to at least sit in and listen, I think. Right. But I mean, at 14 years old, taking a class like this, I mean, God's. I think this for a moment in time is how we grow and then 
yeah, I mean, being open and exposed is mm-hmm. amazing and you need that, but they're not going to get out of it what we're going to get out of it. Because it's like using a fire hose to a water your plants. You're going to kill them. <laughs> <laughs> that's, 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 to, to Chuck's point, well, I don't have that asking. support system at home either to just, oh, sorry. No, you good. doesn't matter. I wasn't going to leave them at home to do gaming. By yeah, no, it was, it was just fine. Yeah, it was just fine. In fact, the reason I said what I did was uh, we would have to make some rather huge changes if everybody started bringing their kids to this, which is why I wanted to actively discourage it. Uh, if it's between uh, we don't come or we bring our kids, well, then, yeah, go for it. Also, They're not harmed by it. Are you? Say, Have you been harmed? Were you going to talk? He's he's the quiet one. Chuck, uh, Chuck's question earlier was about kids being believers, and the uh, I guess there's differences of opinion, which is why they both like like that. But uh, I think a, a good rule that I've kind of come to is, is if you have really young children, they should they're moldable and they believe, and then past that, it's really up. To the churches to decide, church by church groups. Would you agree with that? Like, if you have young young children, they should they should be at least like Jesus because they're being discipled. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Right. Obviously, the, the dad's discipling them. That's kind of the best answer I've heard for that. Yeah, I. Past that, it's, it's really a church. The first first half, I'm I'm completely with you. The second half, I'm mostly with you. Yeah. But I, I just want to clarify it a little bit. So that's actually the, the section that's right here. The children must be respectful, obedient. Uh, this isn't saying they have to be perfect kids because that doesn't exist, right? Uh, but your parenting, because we're, we're looking for the home to be the model of what uh, leading the church looks like. So parenting should be marked by grace. It should be joyful. It should be encouraging. should be patient, not harsh, not overbearing, not demand. All these same things that you see within the qualifications of the leader, you should see reflected in the home. So you want to see uh, an evidence of faithfulness in that time. You want to see evidence of spiritual growth in wife and children. Again, we're not looking for perfection, but an awareness of a spiritual state concerns of the wife and and the kids, peaceful, orderly home, family life, with all dignity, uh, not ruling with an iron fist, uh, and that should, even in the family's finances, should be reflected in that. So specifically thinking into this, his children should be believers. I actually think most of the, the heavy footfall of that has to fall on exactly what Jason said. The children, right, and here's here's where we have a lot of troubles because when we hear children, we hear it through America, our modern age. When they heard children 2,000 years ago, that was really different. Because if you didn't have a job by the time you were 13, like something had gone horribly wrong, right? You were, you're probably going to, yeah, girls, most of them are married by that point. Uh, the guy is an apprentice at this point. He's, he's learning whatever he's going to be doing. Um, so when kids are little, if we are diligent in teaching them, the odds of having a five-year-old who, who just goes, I want nothing to do with this, are really low. Now, in fact, I would say if you do, uh, 
the for faithful families, the vast majority is like you should get that kid looked at. Like there's something there's something that's gone wrong, and this kid needs some help, right? Um, but if you are are a faithful steward of your household, you are going to see evidence of kids, you know, like of course I love Jesus. You know, it, it's that that Sunday school response. Now, once they start getting 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, now they're, they're sort of aging out of that child category. And, and here's where this has gotten, which is why I'm like the second half, we need to qualify really carefully. This is where this has gotten turned on elders and pastors as a club of you hit a certain age. We, we just had this, uh, one of the families from the church and in about a two week period, two teenage kids came and talked to mom and dad and said, yeah, I'm not a Christian. I don't believe any of that. And one had given evidence over a period of time and the other, it was kind of new, fresh revelation. And they were emotionally rocked by it. Just devastated. Now we can all do stuff better. So this isn't to evaluate that. But add on to that, what if that had been the pastor of a church? So now you have uh, older teenagers who come and go, yeah, I'm not a Christian. Do we at that point remove the pastor from ministry because his kids aren't believers? So I think the children thing is super important. And then to understand the second half, who is it that accomplishes salvation? God, salvation belongs to the Lord, right? Psalm 3. So... If salvation belongs to the Lord, in fact, I think it was John said it in the adult Sunday school class last week, maybe, that in the question, we can't do anything to add to or take away from God's work of salvation. The, yeah, the, the end effect, which is salvation. So as parents, we can put all kinds of stumbling blocks in their way. And if you see that, that's the type of person Paul's like, don't have that guy be an elder. That'd be terrible. Or we can see where they're doing everything they can to put the cross in front of their children. And even if as later years they choose to reject it because God is the one who sovereignly saves, elects, or elects for destruction. And I don't, we don't like think about that with our kids. But if that's the case and you see a demonstration of faithfulness and consistency, especially reflected in their children, we're going to go, yeah, of course. And if they have older kids like John Piper, who are actively uh, attempting to work against the gospel and against his dad and against the church, there's no way of understanding that where we're like, yeah, we should remove John Piper from ministry because salvation belongs to the Lord, not even John Piper. Unbelievable. Well, that's, and that's what I was thinking. I was just saying for different churches, yeah, in yeah. General, I didn't. I, 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 yeah. The young kids thing—that's how I, how I've come to grasp it lately. It's like young kids definitely should. I mean, yeah. Like yeah. If you're, the if you're teaching them that. Piper, the John Piper thing. I've heard some people come out against them, and I'm like, I just don't know how I feel about that. I feel terrible about yeah, it. That's how I, I feel. Know, I know. That's, that's what I'm saying. I was like, I don't know. 
You can't, you can't be reformed and land on that. If you think salvation belongs to God, uh, he's the one who has determined from before the foundations of the world whose names are to be written. The fact that a kid was born into your house doesn't guarantee that they're going to heaven. That's why we cry out to God to save our kids. I think that's why it's also important to interpret Scripture with Scripture because this, in this passage, that's what he says, but in the other passages, that's not, he doesn't say that. Yeah. Uh, specifically, uh, he talks about um, not wild, not out of control. Yeah. Uh, and so it's good to say, okay, he says this in this passage. What does he mean? Well, if we look at these other passages, that helps to inform how we yeah. do this passage. And then the totality of how salvation works in Scripture, that we can't impose that. Well, but you're a pastor. You should at least be able to save your family. Incorrect. Josiah, you got a question in the back. Yeah. But talking about in this context that children be faithful and trustworthy rather than demanding that they be believers for an elder to fulfill said requirement. So I think that might help as well. Seth. The material that we're going over, is it exclusively for leadership? It's not. So when we set a standard for requirement for a child to know the word, which is what we're trying, which is what we're aiming to understand better if we're to be leaders. If we set a standard for an age requirement for a child to know the word and be catechized, that's dangerous. But it's also dangerous. With, okay, with reference to what? I, I'm not sure what the context this of that comment is. conversation that happened earlier. This oh, you're talking about kids coming here? Uh, so this isn't about kids being catechized. Uh, this is about ministry development, and uh, which is why I say let's be really careful, uh, especially because there's this whole kind of philosophical swing that's happening that is sort of like let's wrap our kids into everything, which is fine. But uh, one of the things that that tends to preclude is things like seminary. And so imagine that you're going to seminary class and you're like, listen, my four-year-old needs to hear this crap. Like, we got to get them in on this. Like, this is good stuff. This is going to be formational. And they're going to be like, <laughs> you don't get to come either. <laughs> because there, there is something about setting aside specifically, this is about forming in us uh, in an adult setting. Now, we should be doing this. This is why we have things like Sunday school and um, community groups, which I think are community groups, we're going to have to do a little bit better job of working to catechize kids in that. Uh, it, it's a little bit of a philosophical inconsistency when we say, hey, our kids are our primary responsibility. They need to be with us. And then we get them there and we're like, you're free. Ah! And off they go like little birds into the wind. Like, all right, let's take those opportunities to pour in on their level. 
But what we're going to do here, 90% of it's going to miss them. And so what would happen is if 90% of it misses them and because they're here, uh, you miss, say, 20% of what happens because you're caring for a small child, well, we've just defeated the purpose entirely. So that's all I was saying is let's set this time aside. I was more of talking about like the level of comprehension. We set a standard so low for our kids that most yeah. of them don't even know the word. And I'm not talking about small children. I'm talking about teenagers that would be interested in the word. Yeah. So this might not be the Yeah, and if I would say, I would agree. If we have teenagers who are like, man, there's a call of God on my life. Because, uh, I mean, that's really what this is about. Like, we made the point at the beginning, like most of this is requirements for all of the church, but this is a school of ministry. Like for those who say there's a call of God in my life. And I could have told you, uh, at 17. In fact, that was one of the first things I told Danielle when we started dating. I'm like, there's a call in my life. I, I know I'm going to be in ministry. And if, if we're going to go out, you have to sign up for that. If not, it's fine. And it, those I'm like all day long, let's get them in here. If you know of them, go after them. Get them in here. Yeah. I will say another thing with children. As someone who was a child, and still went through Sunday school, really, was tailored to my level of thinking, my sort of creativity point. Like, sure, it, it was pretty simple. I was a child. Like, they only grasp a certain amount of stuff, but children are the sponges of human beings. Like, they absorb everything around them, everything they yeah. see negative things from their parents and positive things and other things that children are doing but like because of that stuff like sure my parents did a great job but you know who like made the decision to like find out this stuff like while I was in youth group like I did a lot of research on my own and that was teach your enable yourself to be able to do this stuff like that's that's a big thing as well like yeah, yeah. you can't can't always teach your children everything but like teaching them to thirst for knowledge that's yeah. that's another thing that i think is super important is yeah. like because you can you can teach your kid till you're blue in the face but like kids only remember what they want to hear and you're kind of selfish little guy sometimes but it's like if you can teach if you can teach your children how to want to learn or enable them how to learn and teach themselves like that's something that changed my life because he did a good job with me. So, like... Because he's humble. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and there's a fine line when it comes to catechizing in Scripture and the things of God from the Word of God. Uh, children don't understand it because of a particular comprehension level. Mm. None of us do. Uh, when it comes to truth from God's Word, we understand it because God and His grace has opened our eyes to it. Uh, regardless of where we are in a comprehension level. But having said that, neither am I going to have a conversation with Aubrey about super sublapsarianism and its effects on soteriology and systematic reformed theological circles. Yeah, he just uh, made all of those words. Is that they are, they are, no, they're not. <laughs> but but that we, we don't want to shortchange or short sell um, God's work in the lives of a child in choosing to open their eyes to the truth. But neither do we want to, again, say, hey, you want to sit down with an ice cream cone and talk about sublapsarianism? Yeah. Um, but it is, again, it's a fine line, but we need to know that 
when it comes to a child understanding, it's not because we did such an awesome job of explaining it. It's because we have an awesome God who opened their eyes to the truth. Yep. I think when you're, with what you're saying, John, I think, I mean, for me, to be involved in our kids' life enough to, to know when that opportunity comes, no matter what age it is. And like Matt was saying, you know, 17-year-olds that's ready for this stuff. So I think that's a key element in all this is being involved enough where you know and can see the character of your child and know when they're ready. Yeah, yeah. Good. All right. I'm going to move on so we can finish this. And I think a lot of this is conversation for another day. So we'll cycle back. Uh, the end, he must not be a recent convert or he will become puffed up with conceit and fall in the condemnation of the devil. So this is uh, another qualification that's unique to elders, pastors, and overseers. Uh, the principle is very important for all those who are going into ministry. Uh, if someone is promoted too quickly, and you see this all the time, especially within the Christian celebrity um, end of the world, somebody who happens to be rich and famous becomes a Christian, and instantly they're the spokesperson for Christianity. And it's, you know, thank God for Justin Bieber, guys. Like, at least we have him. So good. Yeah. Uh, they may become arrogant, but not Justin. It won't happen. Um, this is a time of testing and humbling and seasoning and maturing because it's not all about gifts. It's all about character, which has felt like that's most of what we talked about today. Uh, there should be evidence that humility is a fixed virtue, uh, not a momentary lapse, right? Uh, so there again, uh, I'm going to let you finish. But Beyonce had the greatest video of all time. Like, what arrogance to think that you could interrupt whatever Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift award thing and run up on stage and say that. Well, then as soon as he becomes a Christian, everybody's like fawning over everything that's... Kanye West. Okay. Yeah, Kanye West. Uh, and what, what didn't happen was any amount of time to prove the genuineness of his faith. And it wasn't terribly long before his uh, newfound faith with his newfound wife ended in divorce and, uh, and starting to sound a lot like the old Kanye West, who I'd never listened to either. <laughs> what I'm saying is we shouldn't do it with celebrities and we shouldn't do it with baby Christians. It's bad for them. Okay. All right. Uh, again, we're not looking for perfection. We're looking for uh, steady, consistent Christians, Christians of established character. Uh, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. So uh, John talked about this a little bit earlier. We hear the phrases like, I don't care what anybody thinks. You should. You should care a lot what other people think. We're not talking about being uh, codependent or uh, all of your identity is based in how popular you are or what people think about you, but you represent the gospel of Jesus Christ. You actually represent the church of Jesus Christ to a watching world. And if they hate you because of your proclamation, your loving, clear, gentle proclamation of truth, that's not because they hate you. It's because they hate truth. If on the other hand, uh, 
they are the flower and you are the water hose, the fire hose that's dumping on them. That's, they don't hate you because of your truth. They hate you because you're an idiot. Does that make sense? Okay. If it doesn't see me after class. All right. Uh, so what we have in this description of ministry qualifications is actually uh, an idealized believer, like someone who is living out in every area of their life, the fruit of the spirit. They're walking in that a gentleness, humility, a deep reverence and knowledge of God's word, a deep love for God's people and someone who is willing to pour their life out in that direction. And that's what's required for leadership. So if we're going to, that's the ending point. If we're going to go back to where we started with the failure rate and the burnout rate and how often we fall short of the glory of God, the remedy is not try harder, is dig deeper the wells of faith and salvation that you are drawing from deep waters. Even when everything else seems to be coming against you, you are rooted and anchored in God's love and God's word. Does that make sense? All right, let me just pray for us. Lord, it almost seems like it's too big of a job for anyone because there are so many things that come against us and distract us, that bring us down, that cause us to doubt ourselves or our calling. Lord, even wanting to call into question your power to save and keep your church. And so I pray for myself. I pray for these brothers and sisters. Lord, right now, right at the beginning of this journey, would you fix our eyes on the crucified, risen, and ruling Christ, who is head of the church, who is savior of our souls, is the sanctifier of every believer, is the caller of those who do not know you to come and be saved, and is the equipper of every ministry leader. You are the, you are the strength that fills up all of our efforts. And so I pray, God, would you fix our eyes on Jesus? Would you set our hearts on the power and authority of his word? And then, Lord, would you keep us faithful Lord, would you sustain us through difficult times? When these brothers and sisters, because this day is coming, when they feel like quitting and giving up, I pray that your word would be enough, that your spirit would be sufficient, that you would keep them and see them through those moments. Lord, I pray you would preserve them as you take them, maybe even to difficult and dangerous places. We pray all of this <clears throat> not so at the end they can feel like uh, their life and ministry was a success, but we pray it for the namesake of Jesus, for his gospel, for his kingdom and his glory, we pray. Amen.